This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Red Nails by Robert E. Howard. It's read for us by Greg Marguerite. Stick around for our discussion of it afterwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Greg Marguerite Red Nails by Robert E. Howard Chapter 1 The Skull on the Crag The woman on the horse reined in her weary steed. It stood with its legs wide-braced, its head drooping as if it found even the weight of the gold-tasseled red leather bridle too heavy. The woman drew a booted foot out of the silver stirrup and swung down from the gilt-worked saddle. She made the reins fast to the fork of a sapling and turned about, hands on her hips, to survey her surroundings. They were not inviting. Giant trees hemmed in the small pool where her horse had just drunk. Clumps of undergrowth limited the vision that quested under the somber twilight of the lofty arches formed by intertwining branches. The woman shivered with a twitch of her magnificent shoulders, and then cursed. She was tall, full-bosomed, and large-limbed, with compact shoulders. Her whole figure reflected an unusual strength without detracting from the femininity of her appearance. She was all woman, in spite of her bearing and her garments. The latter were incongruous, in view of her present environs. Instead of a skirt, she wore short, wide-legged silk breeches which ceased a hand's breadth short of her knees, and were upheld by a wide silken sash, worn as a girdle. Flaring-topped boots of soft leather came almost to her knees, and a low-necked, wide-collared, wide-sleeved silk shirt completed her costume. On one shapely hip she wore a straight double-edged sword, and on the other a long dirk. Her unruly golden hair, cut square at her shoulders, was confined by a band of crimson satin. Against the background of somber, primitive forest she posed with an unconscious picturesqueness, bizarre and out of place. She should have been posed against a background of sea-clouds, painted masts, and wheeling gulls. There was the color of the sea in her wide eyes, and that was as it should have been, because this was Valeria of the Red Brotherhood, whose deeds are celebrated in song and ballad wherever seafarers gather. She strove to pierce the sullen green roof of the arched branches and see the sky which presumably lay about it, but presently gave it up with a muttered oath. Leaving her horse tied, she strode off toward the east, glancing back toward the pool from time to time in order to fix her route in her mind. The silence of the forest depressed her. No birds sang in the lofty boughs, nor did any rustling in the bushes indicate the presence of any small animals. For leagues she had traveled in a realm of brooding stillness, broken only by the sounds of her own flight. She had slaked her thirst at the pool, but she felt the gnawings of hunger and began looking about for some of the fruit on which she had sustained herself since exhausting the food she had brought in her saddlebags. 
Ahead of her, presently, she saw an outcropping of dark flint-like rock that sloped upward into what looked like a rugged crag rising among the trees. Its summit was lost to view amidst a cloud of encircling leaves. Perhaps its peak rose above the treetops, and from it she could see what lay beyond, if indeed anything lay beyond, but more of this apparently illimitable forest through which she had ridden for so many days. A narrow ridge formed a natural ramp that led up the steep face of the crag. After she had ascended some fifty feet, she came to the belt of leaves that surrounded the rock. The trunks of the trees did not crowd close to the crag, but the ends of their lower branches extended about it, veiling it with their foliage. She groped on in leafy obscurity, not able to see either above or below her, but presently she glimpsed blue sky and a moment later came out in the clear, hot sunlight and saw the forest roof stretching away under her feet. She was standing on a broad shelf, which was about even with the treetops, and from it rose a spire-like jut that was the ultimate peak of the crag she had climbed. But something else caught her attention at the moment. Her foot had struck something in the litter of blown dead leaves which carpeted the shelf. She kicked them aside and looked down on the skeleton of a man. She ran an experienced eye over the bleached frame, but saw no broken bones, nor any sign of violence. The man must have died a natural death, though why he should have climbed a tall crag to die she could not imagine. She scrambled up to the summit of the spire and looked toward the horizon. The forest roof, which looked like a floor from her vantage point, was just as impenetrable as from below. She could not even see the pool by which she had left her horse. She glanced northward, in the direction from which she had come. She saw only the rolling green ocean stretching away and away, with only a vague blue line in the distance to hint of the hill range she had crossed days before to plunge into this leafy waste. West and east the view was the same, though the blue hill line was lacking in those directions. But when she turned her eyes southward, she stiffened and caught her breath. A mile away in that direction the forest thinned out and ceased abruptly, giving way to a cactus-dotted plain, and in the midst of that plain rose the walls and towers of a city. Valeria swore in amazement. This passed belief. She would not have been surprised to sight human habitations of another sort, the beehive-shaped huts of the black people, or the cliff-dwellings of the mysterious brown race which legends declared inhabited in sub-country of this unexplored region. But it was a startling experience to come upon a walled city, here so many long weeks march from the nearest outposts of any sort of civilization. Her hands tiring from clinging to the spire-like pinnacle, she let herself down on the shelf, frowning in indecision. She had come far, from the camp of the mercenaries by the border town of Sukhmet, amidst the level grasslands where desperate adventurers of many races guard the Stygian frontier against the raids that come up like a red wave from Darfar. Her fight had been blind into a country of which she was wholly ignorant and now she wavered between an urge to ride directly to that city in the plain and the instinct of caution which prompted her to skirt it widely and continue her solitary flight. Her thoughts were scattered by the rustling of the leaves below her. 
She wheeled cat-like, snatched at her sword, and then she froze, motionless, staring wide-eyed at the man before her. He was almost a giant in stature, muscles rippling smoothly under his skin which the sun had burned brown. His garb was similar to hers, except that he wore a broad leather belt instead of a girdle. Broadsword and poniard hung from this belt. Conan the Cimmerian? ejaculated the woman. What are you doing on my trail? He grinned hardly, and his fierce blue eyes burned with a light any woman could understand as they ran over her magnificent figure, lingering on the swell of her splendid breasts beneath the light shirt, and the clear white flesh displayed between breeches and boot-tops. Don't you know? he laughed. Haven't I made my admiration for you plain ever since I first saw you? A stallion could have made it no plainer, she answered disdainfully. But I never expected to encounter you so far from the ale-barrels and meat-pots of Sukhmet. Did you really follow me from Zarallo's camp, or were you whipped forth for a rogue? He laughed at her insolence and flexed his mighty biceps. You know Zarallo didn't have enough knaves to whip me out of camp, he grinned. Of course I followed you. Lucky thing for you, too, wench. When you knifed that Stygian officer, you forfeited Zarallo's favor and protection, and you outlawed yourself with the Stygians. I know it, she replied sullenly. But what else could I do? You, you know what my provocation was. Sure, he agreed. If I'd been there, I'd have knifed him myself. But if a woman must live in the war camps of men, she can expect such things. Valeria stamped her booted foot and swore. Why won't men let me live a man's life? That's obvious. Again his eager eyes devoured her. But you were wise to run away. The Stygians would have had you skinned. That officer's brother followed you, faster than you thought, I don't doubt. He wasn't far behind you when I caught up with him. His horse was better than yours. He'd have caught you and cut your throat within a few more miles. Well? she demanded. Well, what? He seemed puzzled. What of the Stygian? Why, what do you suppose? He returned impatiently. I killed him, of course, and left his carcass for the vultures. That delayed me, though, and I almost lost your trail when you crossed the rocky spurs of the hills. Otherwise I'd have caught up with you long ago. And now you think you'll drag me back to Zarallo's camp? She sneered. Don't talk like a fool, he grunted. Come, girl, don't be such a spitfire. I'm not like the Stygian you knifed, and you know it. A penniless vagabond, she taunted. He laughed at her. What do you call yourself? You haven't enough money to buy a new seat for your breeches. Your disdain doesn't deceive me. You know I've commanded bigger ships and more men than you ever did in your life. As for being penniless, what rover isn't most of the time? I've squandered enough gold in the seaports of the world to fill a galleon. You know that, too. Where are the fine ships and the bold lads you commanded now? She sneered. At the bottom of the sea, mostly, he replied cheerfully. The Zingaran sank my last ship off the Shemite shore. That's why I joined Zarallo's free companions. But I saw I'd been stung when we marched to the Darfar border. The pay was poor and the wine was sour, and I don't like black women. 
And that's the only kind that came to our camp at Sukhmet. Rings in their noses and their teeth filed. Bah! Why did you join Zarallo? Sukhmet's a long way from salt water. Red Ortho wanted to make me his mistress, she answered sullenly. I jumped overboard one night and swam ashore when we were anchored off the Cushite coast, off Zabila, it was. There a Shemite trader told me that Zarallo had brought his free companions south to guard the Darfar border. No better employment offered, I joined an eastbound caravan and eventually came to Sukhmet. It was madness to plunge southward as you did, commented Conan. But it was wise, too, for Zarallo's patrols never thought to look for you in this direction. Only the brother of the man you killed happened to strike your trail. And now what do you intend doing? she demanded. Turn west, he answered. I've been this far south, but not this far east. Many days traveling to the west will bring us to the open savannas where the black tribes graze their cattle. I have friends among them. We'll get to the coast and find a ship. I'm sick of the jungle. Then be on your way, she advised. I have other plans. Don't be a fool. He showed irritation for the first time. You can't keep on wandering through this forest. I can if I choose. But what do you intend doing? That's none of your affair, she snapped. Yes, it is he answered calmly. Do you think I've followed you this far to turn around and ride off empty-handed? Be sensible, wench. I'm not going to harm you. He stepped toward her, and she sprang back, whipping out her sword. Keep back, you barbarian dog! I'll split you like a roast pig! He halted reluctantly and demanded, Do you want me to take that toy away from you and spank you with it? Words! Nothing but words! She mocked lights like a gleam of the sun on blue water dancing in her reckless eyes. He knew it was the truth. No living man could disarm Valeria of the Brotherhood with his bare hands. He scowled, his sensations a tangle of conflicting emotions. He was angry, yet he was amused and filled with admiration for her spirit. He burned with eagerness to seize that splendid figure and crush it in his iron arms, yet he greatly desired not to hurt the girl. He was torn between a desire to shake her soundly and a desire to caress her. He knew if he came any nearer her sword would be sheathed in his heart. He had seen Valeria kill too many men in border forays and tavern brawls to have any illusions about her. He knew she was as quick and ferocious as a tigress. He could draw his broadsword and disarm her beat the blade out of her hand, but the thought of drawing a sword on a woman, even without intent of injury, was extremely repugnant to him. "'Blast your soul, you hussy!' he exclaimed in exasperation. "'I'm going to take off your—' He started toward her, his angry passions making him reckless, and she poised herself for a deadly thrust. Then came a startling interruption to a scene at once ludicrous and perilous. What's that? It was Valeria who exclaimed, but they both started violently, and Conan wheeled like a cat, his great sword flashing in his hand. Back in the forest had burst forth an appalling medley of screams, the screams of horses in terror and agony. Mingled with their screams there came the snap of splintering bones. 
Lions are slaying the horses, cried Valeria. Lions nothing, snorted Conan, his eyes blazing. Did you ever hear a lion roar? Neither did I. Listen at those bones snap. Not even a lion could make that much noise killing a horse. He hurried down the natural ramp, and she followed, their personal feud forgotten in the adventurer's instinct to unite against common peril. The screams had ceased when they worked their way downward through the green veil of leaves that brushed the rock. "'I found your horse tied by the pool back there,' he muttered, treading so noiselessly that she no longer wondered how he had surprised her on the crag. "'I tied mine beside it and followed the tracks of your boots. Watch now.' They had emerged from the belt of leaves and stared down into the lower reaches of the forest. Above them the green roof spread its dusky canopy. Below them the sunlight filtered in just enough to make a jade-tinted twilight. The giant trunks of trees less than a hundred yards away looked dim and ghostly. "'The horses should be beyond that thicket over there,' whispered Conan, and his voice might have been a breeze moving through the branches. Listen. Valeria had already heard, and a chill crept through her veins, so she unconsciously laid her white hand on her companion's muscular brown arm. From beyond the thicket came the noisy crunching of bones and the loud rending of flesh, together with the grinding, slobbering sounds of a horrible feast. "'Lions wouldn't make that noise,' whispered Conan. "'Something's eating our horses, but it's not a lion. Crom. The noise stopped suddenly, and Conan swore softly. A suddenly risen breeze was blowing from them directly toward the spot where the unseen slayer was hidden. "'Here it comes,' muttered Conan, half lifting his sword. The thicket was violently agitated, and Valeria clutched Conan's arm hard. Ignorant of jungle lore, she yet knew that no animal she had ever seen could have shaken the tall brush like that. It must be as big as an elephant, muttered Conan, echoing her thought. What the devil? His voice trailed away in stunned silence. Through the thicket was thrust a head of nightmare and lunacy, grinning jaws, bared rows of dripping yellow tusks, above the yawning mouth wrinkled a saurian-like snout. Huge eyes, like those of a python a thousand times magnified, stared unwinkingly at the petrified humans clinging to the rock above it. Blood smeared the scaly, flabby lips and dripped from the huge mouth. The head, bigger than that of a crocodile, was further extended on a long-scaled neck on which stood up rows of serrated spikes, and after it, crushing down the briars and saplings, waddled the body of a titan, a gigantic barrel-bellied torso on absurdly short legs. The whitish belly almost raked the ground, while the serrated backbone rose higher than Conan could have reached on tiptoe. A long, spiked tail like that of a gargantuan scorpion trailed out behind. "'Back up the crag! Quick!' snapped Conan, thrusting the girl behind him. "'I don't think he can climb, but he can stand on his hind legs and reach us.' With a snapping and rending of bushes and saplings the monster came hurtling through the thickets, and they fled up the rock before him like leaves blown before a wind. 
As Valeria plunged into the leafy screen, a backward glance showed her the titan rearing up fearsomely on his massive hind legs, even as Conan had predicted. The sight sent panic racing through her. As he reared, the beast seemed more gigantic than ever. His snouted head towered among the trees. Then Conan's ironed hand closed on her wrist, and she was jerked headlong into the blinding welter of leaves and out again into the hot sunshine above. Just as the monster fell forward with his front feet on the crag, with an impact that made the rock vibrate. Behind the fugitives the huge head crashed through the twigs, and they looked down for a horrifying instant at the nightmare visage framed among the green leaves, eyes flaming, jaws gaping. Then the giant tusks clashed together futilely, and after that the head was withdrawn, vanishing from their sight as if it had sunk in a pool. Peering down through broken branches that scraped the rock, they saw it squatting on its haunches at the foot of the crag, staring unblinkingly up at them. Valeria shuddered. How long do you suppose he'll crouch there? Conan kicked the skull on the leaf-strewn shelf. That fellow must have climbed up here to escape him, or one like him. He must have died of starvation. There are no bones broken. That thing must be a dragon such as the black people speak of in their legends. If so, it won't leave here until we're both dead. Valeria looked at him blankly, her resentment forgotten. She fought down a surging of panic. She had proved her reckless courage a thousand times in wild battles on sea and land, on the blood-slippery decks of burning warships, in the storming of walled cities, and on the trampling sandy beaches where the desperate men of the Red Brotherhood bathed their knives in one another's blood in the fights for leadership. But the prospect now confronting her congealed her blood. A cutlass stroke in the heat of battle was nothing. But to sit idle and helpless on a bare rock until she perished of starvation, besieged by a monstrous survival of an elder age, the thought sent panic throbbing through her brain. He must leave to eat and drink, she said helplessly. He won't have to go far to do either, Conan pointed out. He's just gorged on horse meat, and like a real snake, he can go for a long time without eating or drinking again. But he doesn't sleep after eating like a real snake, it seems. Anyway, he can't climb this crag. Conan spoke imperturbably. He was a barbarian, and the terrible patience of the wilderness and its children was as much a part of him as his lusts and rages. He could endure a situation like this with a coolness impossible to a civilized person. Can't we get into the trees and get away traveling like apes through the branches? she asked desperately. He shook his head. I thought of that. The branches that touch the crag down there are too light. They'd break with our weight. Besides, I have an idea that devil could tear up any tree around here by its roots. Well, are we going to sit here on our rumps until we starve like that? she cried furiously, kicking the skull, clattering across the ledge. I won't do it. I'll go down there and cut his damned head off. Conan had seated himself on a rocky projection at the foot of the spire. He looked up with a glint of admiration at her blazing eyes and tense, quivering figure, but realizing that she was in just the mood for any madness, he let none of his admiration sound in his voice. 
Sit down, he grunted, catching her by the wrist and pulling her down on his knee. She was too surprised to resist as he took her sword from her hand and shoved it back in its sheath. Sit still and calm down. You'd only break your steel on his scales. He'd gobble you up at one gulp, or smash you like an egg with that spiked tail of his. We'll get out of this jam some way, but we shan't do it by getting chewed up and swallowed. She made no reply, nor did she seek to repulse his arms from about her waist. She was frightened, and the sensation was new to Valeria of the Red Brotherhood. So she sat on her companion's, or captor's, knee with a docility that would have amazed Zorallo, who had anathematized her as a she-devil out of hell's seraglio. Conan played idly with her curly yellow locks, seemingly intent only upon his conquest. Neither the skeleton at his feet nor the monster crouching below disturbed his mind or dulled the edge of his interest. The girl's restless eyes roving the leaves below them discovered splashes of color among the green. It was fruit, large, darkly crimson globes suspended from the boughs of a tree whose broad leaves were a peculiarly rich and vivid green. She became aware of both thirst and hunger, though thirst had not assailed her until she knew she could not descend from the crag to find food and water. "'We need not starve,' she said. "'There is fruit we can reach.' Conan glanced where she pointed. "'If we ate that, we wouldn't need the bite of the dragon,' he grunted. "'That's what the black people of Kush call the apples of Durketa. Durketa is the queen of the dead.' Drink a little of that juice or spill it on your flesh, and you'd be dead before you could tumble to the foot of this crag. Oh. She lapsed into dismayed silence. There seemed no way out of their predicament. She reflected gloomily. She saw no way of escape, and Conan seemed to be concerned only with her supple waist and curly tresses. If he was trying to formulate a plan of escape, he did not show it. If you'll take your hands off me long enough to climb up on that peak, she said presently, you'll see something that will surprise you. He cast her a questioning glance, then obeyed with a shrug of his massive shoulders. Clinging to the spire-like pinnacle, he stared out over the forest roof. He stood a long moment in silence, posed like a bronze statue on the rock. It's a walled city right enough, he muttered presently. Was that where you were going when you tried to send me off alone to the coast? I saw it before you came. I knew nothing of it when I left Sukhmet. Who'd have thought to find a city here? I don't believe the Stygians ever penetrated this far. Could black people build a city like that? I see no herds on the plain, no signs of cultivation or people moving about. How could you hope to see all that at this distance? she demanded. He shrugged his shoulders and dropped down on the shelf. Well, the folk of the city can't help us just now, and they might not if they could. The people of the black countries are generally hostile to strangers, probably stick us full of spears. He stopped short and stood silent as if he had forgotten what he was saying, frowning down at the crimson spheres gleaming among the leaves. Spears, he muttered. What a blasted fool I am not to have thought of that before! That shows what a pretty woman does to a man's mind. What are you talking about? 
she inquired. Without answering her, he descended to the belt of leaves and looked down through them. The great brute squatted below, watching the crag with the frightful patience of the reptile folk. So might one of his breed have glared up at their troglodyte ancestors, treed on a high-flung rock in the dim dawn ages. Conan cursed him without heat and began cutting branches, reaching out and severing them as far from the end as he could reach. The agitation of the leaves made the monster restless. He rose from his haunches and lashed his hideous tail, snapping off saplings as if they had been toothpicks. Conan watched him warily from the corner of his eye, and just as Valeria believed the dragon was about to hurl himself up the crag again, the Cimmerian drew back and climbed up to the ledge with the branches he had cut. There were three of these, slender shafts about seven feet long, but not larger than his thumb. He had also cut several strands of tough, thin vine. Branches too light for spear-hafts and creepers no thicker than cords, he remarked indicating the foliage about the crag. It won't hold our weight, but there's strength in union. That's what the Aquilonian renegades used to tell us Cimmerians when they came into the hills to raise an army to invade their own country. But we always fight by clans and tribes. What the devil has that got to do with those sticks? she demanded. You wait and see. Gathering the sticks in a compact bundle, he wedged his poniard hilt between them at one end. Then with the vines he bound them together, and when he had completed his task he had a spear of no small strength with a sturdy shaft seven feet in length. "'What good will that do?' she demanded. "'You told me that a blade wouldn't pierce his scales.' "'He hasn't got scales all over him,' answered Conan. "'There's more than one way of skinning a panther.' Moving down to the edge of the leaves, he reached the spear up and carefully thrust the blade through one of the apples of Derketa, drawing aside to avoid the darkly purple drops that dripped from the pierced fruit. Presently he withdrew the blade and showed her the blue steel stained a dull purplish crimson. I don't know whether it will do the job or not, quoth he. There's enough poison there to kill an elephant, but, well, we'll see. Valeria was close behind him as he let himself down among the leaves. Cautiously holding the poisoned pike away from him, he thrust his head through the branches and addressed the monster. "'What are you waiting down there for, you misbegotten offspring of questionable parents?' was one of his more printable queries. "'Stick your ugly head up here again, you long-necked brute, or do you want me to come down there and kick you loose from your illegitimate spine?' There was more of it, some of it couched in eloquence that made Valeria stare, in spite of her profane education among the seafarers. And it had its effect on the monster. Just as the incessant yapping of a dog worries and enrages more constitutionally silent animals, so the clamorous voice of a man rouses fear in some bestial bosoms and insane rage in others. Suddenly, and with appalling quickness, the mastodonic brute reached up on its mighty hind legs and elongated its neck and body in a furious effort to reach this vociferous pygmy whose clamor was disturbing the primeval silence of its ancient realm. But Conan had judged his distance with precision. 
Some five feet below him the mighty head crashed terribly but futilely through the leaves, and as the monstrous mouth gaped like that of a great snake, Conan drove his spear into the red angle of the jawbone hinge. He struck downward with all the strength of both arms, driving the long poniard blade to the hilt in the flesh, sinew, and bone. Instantly the jaws clashed convulsively together, severing the triple-pieced shaft and almost precipitating Conan from his perch. He would have fallen but for the girl behind him who caught his sword-belt in a desperate grasp. He clutched at a rocky projection and grinned his thanks back at her. Down on the ground the monster was wallowing like a dog with pepper in its eyes. He shook his head from side to side, pawed at it, and opened his mouth repeatedly to its widest extent. Presently he got a huge front foot on the stump of the shaft and managed to tear the blade out. Then he threw up his head, jaws wide and spouting blood, and glared up at the crag with such concentrated and intelligent fury that Valeria trembled and drew her sword. The scales along his back and flanks turned from rusty brown to a dull, lurid red. Most horribly, the monster's silence was broken. The sounds that issued from his blood-streaming jaws did not sound like anything that could have been produced by an earthly creation. With harsh, grating roars, the dragon hurled himself at the crag that was the citadel of his enemies. Again and again his mighty head crashed upward through the branches, snapping vainly on empty air. He hurled his full, ponderous weight against the rock until it vibrated from base to crest, and rearing upright he gripped it with his front legs like a man and tried to tear it up by the roots as if it had been a tree. This exhibition of primordial fury chilled the blood in Valeria's veins, but Conan was too close to the primitive himself to feel anything but a comprehending interest. To the barbarian no such gulf existed between himself and other men and the animals, as existed in the conception of Valeria. The monster below them, to Conan, was merely a form of life differing from himself mainly in physical shape. He attributed to it characteristics similar to his own, and saw in its wrath a counterpart of his rages, in its roars and bellowings merely reptilian equivalents to the curses he had bestowed upon it. Feeling a kinship with all wild things, even dragons, it was impossible for him to experience the sick horror which assailed Valeria at the sight of the brute's ferocity. He sat watching it tranquilly and pointed out the various changes that were taking place in its voice and actions. The poison's taking hold, he said with conviction. I don't believe it. To Valeria it seemed preposterous to suppose that anything, however lethal, could have any effect on that mountain of muscle and fury. "'There's pain in his voice,' declared Conan. First he was merely angry because of the stinging in his jaw. Now he feels the bite of the poison. Look, he's staggering. He'll be blind in a few more minutes. What did I tell you?' For suddenly the dragon had lurched about and went crashing off through the bushes. Is he running away? inquired Valeria uneasily. He's making for the pool. Conan sprang up, galvanized into swift activity. The poison makes him thirsty. Come on, he'll be blind in a few moments, but he can smell his way back to the foot of the crag, and if our scent's here still, he'll sit there until he dies, and others of his kind may come at his cries. Let's go. Down there? 
Valeria was aghast. Sure, we'll make for the city. They may cut our heads off there, but it's our only chance. We may run into a thousand more dragons on the way, but it's sure death to stay here. If we wait until he dies, we may have a dozen more to deal with. After me, in a hurry. He went down the ramp as swiftly as an ape, pausing only to aid his less agile companion, who, until she saw the Cimmerian climb, had fancied herself the equal of any man in the rigging of a ship or on the sheer face of a cliff. They descended into the gloom below the branches and slid to the ground silently, though Valeria felt as if the pounding of her heart must surely be heard from far away. A noisy gurgling and lapping beyond the dense thicket indicated that the dragon was drinking at the pool. "'As soon as his belly is full, he'll be back,' muttered Conan. "'It may take hours for the poison to kill him, if it does at all.' Somewhere beyond the forest the sun was sinking to the horizon. The forest was a misty twilight place of black shadows and dim vistas. Conan gripped Valeria's wrist and glided away from the foot of the crag. He made less noise than a breeze blowing among the tree-trunks, but Valeria felt as if her soft boots were betraying their flight to all the forest. "'I don't think he can follow a trail,' muttered Conan. "'But if a wind blew our body scent to him, he could smell us out.' "'Mitra, grant me the wind blow not,' Valeria breathed. Her face was a pallid oval in the gloom. She gripped her sword in her free hand, but the feel of the chagrin-bound hilt inspired only a feeling of helplessness in her. They were still some distance from the edge of the forest when they heard a snapping and crashing behind them. Valeria bit her lip to check a cry. "'He's on our trail!' she whispered fiercely. Conan shook his head. "'He didn't smell us at the rock, and he's blundering about through the forest trying to pick up our scent.' Come on, it's the city or nothing now. He could tear down any tree we'd climb, if only the wind stays down. They stole on until the trees began to thin out ahead of them. Behind them the forest was a black, impenetrable ocean of shadows. The ominous crackling still sounded behind them as the dragon blundered in his erratic course. There's the plain ahead, breathed Valeria. A little more and we'll... Crom! swore Conan. Mitra, whispered Valeria. Out of the south, a wind had sprung up. It blew over them directly into the black forest behind them. Instantly a horrible roar shook the woods. The aimless snapping and crackling of the bushes changed to a sustained crashing as the dragon came like a hurricane straight toward the spot from which the scent of his enemies was wafted. Run, snarled Conan his eyes blazing like those of a trapped wolf. It's all we can do. The sailor's boots are not made for sprinting, and the life of a pirate does not train one for a runner. Within a hundred yards Valeria was panting and reeling in her gait, and behind them the crashing gave way to a rolling thunder as the monster broke out of the thickets and into the more open ground. Conan's iron arm about the woman's waist half lifted her. Her feet scarcely touched the earth as she was borne along at a speed she could never have attained herself. If he could keep out of the beast's way for a bit, perhaps that betraying wind would shift. But the wind held, and a quick glance over his shoulder showed Conan that the monster was almost upon them, coming like a war-galley in front of a hurricane. 
He thrust Valeria from him with a force that sent her reeling a dozen feet to fall in a crumpled heap at the foot of the nearest tree, and the Cimmerian wheeled in the path of the thundering titan. Convinced that his death was upon him, the Cimmerian acted according to his instinct, and hurled himself full at the awful face that was bearing down on him. He leaped, slashing like a wildcat, felt his sword cut deep into the scales that sheathed the mighty snout, and then a terrific impact knocked him rolling and tumbling for fifty feet with all the wind and half the life battered out of him. How the stunned Cimmerian regained his feet, not even he could have ever told. But the only thought that filled his brain was of the woman lying dazed and helpless almost in the path of the hurtling fiend, and before the breath came whistling back into his gullet he was standing over her with his sword in his hand. She lay where he had thrown her, but she was struggling to a sitting posture. Neither tearing tusks nor trampling feet had touched her. It had been a shoulder or front leg that struck Conan, and the blind monster rushed on, forgetting the victims whose scent it had been following, in the sudden agony of its death throes. Headlong on its course it thundered until its low-hung head crashed into a gigantic tree in its path. The impact tore the tree up by its roots and must have dashed the brains from the misshapen skull. Tree and monster fell together, and the dazed humans saw the branches and leaves shaken by the convulsions of the creature they covered, and then grow quiet. Conan lifted Valeria to her feet, and together they started away at a reeling run. A few moments later they emerged into the still twilight of the treeless plain. Conan paused an instant and glanced back at the ebon fastness behind them. Not a leaf stirred, nor a bird chirped. It stood as silent as it must have stood before man was created. "'Come on,' muttered Conan, taking his companion's hand. "'It's touch and go now. If more dragons come out of the woods after us—' He did not have to finish the sentence. The city looked very far away across the plain, farther than it had looked from the crag. Valeria's heart hammered until she felt as if it would strangle her. At every step she expected to hear the crashing of the bushes and see another colossal nightmare bearing down upon them, but nothing disturbed the silence of the thickets. With the first mile between them and the woods, Valeria breathed more easily. Her buoyant self-confidence began to thaw out again. The sun had set, and darkness was gathering over the plain, lighted a little by the stars that made stunted ghosts out of the cactus growths. No cattle. No plowed fields, muttered Conan. How do these people live? Perhaps the cattle are in pens for the night, suggested Valeria, and the fields and grazing pastures are on the other side of the city. Maybe, he grunted. I didn't see any from the crag, though. The moon came up behind the city, etching walls and towers blackly in the yellow glow. Valeria shivered. Black against the moon, the strange city had a somber, sinister look. Perhaps something of the same feeling occurred to Conan, for he stopped, glanced about him, and grunted. We stop here. No use coming to their gates in the night. They probably wouldn't let us in. Besides, we need rest, and we don't know how they'll receive us. A few hours' sleep will put us in better shape to fight or run. He led the way to a bed of cactus which grew in a circle, a phenomenon common to the southern desert. 
With his sword he chopped an opening and motioned Valeria to enter. We'll be safe from snakes here, anyhow. She glanced fearfully back toward the black line that indicated the forest some six miles away. Suppose a dragon comes out of the woods? We'll keep watch, he answered, though he made no suggestion as to what they would do in such an event. He was staring at the city a few miles away. Not a light shone from spire or tower. A great black mass of mystery, it reared cryptically against the moonlit sky. Lie down and sleep. I'll keep the first watch. She hesitated, glancing at him uncertainly, but he sat down cross-legged in the opening, facing toward the plain, his sword on his knees, his back to her. Without further comment, she lay down on the sand inside the spiky circle. Wake me when the moon is at its zenith, she directed. He did not reply, nor look toward her. Her last impression, as she sank into slumber, was of his muscular figure, immobile as a statue hewn out of bronze, outlined against the low-hanging stars. Chapter 2 By the Blaze of the Fire Jewels Valeria awoke with a start, to the realization that a gray dawn was stealing over the plain. She sat up, rubbing her eyes. Conan squatted beside the cactus, cutting off the thick pears and dexterously twitching out the spikes. "'You didn't awake me,' she accused. "'You let me sleep all night.' "'You were tired,' he answered. "'Your posterior must have been sore, too, after that long ride. You pirates aren't used to horseback.' "'What about yourself?' she retorted. "'I was a Kozak before I was a pirate,' he answered. They live in the saddle. I snatch naps like a panther watching beside the trail for a deer to come by. My ears keep watch while my eyes sleep. And indeed the giant barbarian seemed as much refreshed as if he had slept the whole night on a golden bed. Having removed the thorns and peeled off the tough skin, he handed the girl a thick, juicy cactus leaf. Skin your teeth in that pear. It's food and drink to a desert man. I was chief of the Zuigers once, desert men who live by plundering the caravans. Is there anything you haven't been? inquired the girl, half in derision and half in fascination. I've never been king of a Hyborian kingdom, he grinned, taking an enormous mouthful of cactus. But I've dreamed of being even that. I may be too some day. Why shouldn't I? She shook her head in wonder at his calm audacity, and fell to devouring her pear. She found it not unpleasing to the palate and full of cool and thirst-satisfying juice. Finishing his meal, Conan wiped his hands in the sand, rose, ran his fingers through his thick black mane, hitched at his sword-belt, and said, Well, let's go. If the people in that city are going to cut our throats, they may as well do it now, before the heat of the day begins. His grim humor was unconscious, but Valeria reflected that it might be prophetic. She, too, hitched her sword-belt as she rose. Her terrors of the night were past. The roaring dragons of the distant forest were like a dim dream. There was a swagger in her stride as she moved off beside the Cimmerian. Whatever perils lay ahead of them, their foes would be men, 
and Valeria of the Red Brotherhood had never seen the face of the man she feared. Conan glanced down at her as she strode along beside him with her swinging stride that matched his own. "'You walk more like a hillman than a sailor,' he said. "'You must be an Aquilonian. The sons of Darfar never burnt your white skin brown. Many a princess would envy you.' "'I am from Aquilonia,' she replied. His compliments no longer irritated her. His evident admiration pleased her. For another man to have kept her watch while she slept would have angered her. She had always fiercely resented any man's attempt to shield or protect her because of her sex. But she found a secret pleasure in the fact that this man had done so. And he had not taken advantage of her fright and the weakness resulting from it. After all, she reflected, her companion was no common man. The sun rose behind the city, turning the towers to a sinister crimson. Black last night against the moon, grunted Conan, his eyes clouding with the abysmal superstition of the barbarian. Blood red as a threat of blood against the sun this dawn. I do not like this city. But they went on, and as they went, Conan pointed out the fact that no road ran to the city from the north. No cattle have trampled the plain on this side of the city, said he. No plowshare has touched the earth for years, maybe centuries. But look, once this plain was cultivated. Valeria saw the ancient irrigation ditches he indicated, half-filled in places and overgrown with cactus. She frowned with perplexity as her eyes swept over the plain that stretched on all sides of the city to the forest edge, which marched in a vast, dim ring. Vision did not extend beyond that ring. She looked uneasily at the city. No helmets or spearheads gleamed on battlements. No trumpets sounded. No challenge rang from the towers. A silence as absolute as that of the forest brooded over the walls and minarets. The sun was high above the eastern horizon when they stood before the great gate in the northern wall in the shadow of the lofty rampart. Rust flecked the iron bracings of the mighty bronze portal. Spiderwebs glistened thickly on hinge and sill and bolted panel. "'It hasn't been opened for years!' exclaimed Valeria. "'A dead city,' grunted Conan. "'That's why the ditches were broken and the plain untouched.' Who built it? Who dwelt here? Where did they go? Why did they abandon it? Who can say? Maybe an exiled clan of Stygians built it. Maybe not. It doesn't look like Stygian architecture. Maybe the people were wiped out by enemies or a plague exterminated them. In that case, their treasures may still be gathering dust and cobwebs in there, suggested Valeria. The acquisitive instincts of her profession waking in her prodded, too, by feminine curiosity. Can we open the gate? Let's go in and explore a bit. Conan eyed the heavy portal dubiously, but placed his massive shoulder against it and thrust with all the power of his muscular calves and thighs. With a rasping screech of rusty hinges, the gate moved ponderously inward, and Conan straightened and drew his sword. Valeria stared over his shoulder and made a sound indicative of surprise. They were not looking into an open street or court as one would have expected. 
The opened gate, or door, gave directly into a long, broad hall which ran away and away until its vista grew indistinct in the distance. It was of heroic proportions and the floor of a curious red stone cut in square tiles that seemed to smolder as if with the reflection of flames. The walls were of a shiny green material. Jade, or I'm a Shemite, swore Conan. Not in such quantity, protested Valeria. I've looted enough from the Kitan caravans to know what I'm talking about, he asserted. That's jade. The vaulted ceiling was of lapis lazuli adorned with clusters of great green stones that gleamed with a poisonous radiance. Green fire stones, growled Conan. That's what the people of Pont call them. They're supposed to be the petrified eyes of those prehistoric snakes, the ancients called golden serpents. They glow like a cat's eyes in the dark. At night this hall would be lighted by them, but it would be a hellish, weird illumination. Let's look around. We might find a cache of jewels. Shut the door, advised Valeria. I'd hate to have to outrun a dragon down this hall. Conan grinned and replied, I don't believe the dragons ever leave the forest. But he complied and pointed out the broken bolt on the inner side. I thought I heard something snap when I shoved against it. That bolt's freshly broken. Rust has eaten nearly through it. If the people ran away, why should it have been bolted on the inside? They undoubtedly left by another door, suggested Valeria. She wondered how many centuries had passed since the light of outer day had filtered into that great hall through the open door. Sunlight was finding its way somehow into the hall, and they quickly saw the source. High up in the vaulted ceiling, skylights were set in slot-like openings, translucent sheets of some crystalline substance. In the splotches of shadow between them, the green jewels winked like the eyes of angry cats. Beneath their feet the dully lurid floor smoldered with changing hues and colors of flame. It was like treading the floors of hell with evil stars blinking overhead. Three balustrated galleries ran along each side of the hall, one above the other. A four-storied house, grunted Conan, and this hall extends to the roof. It's long as a street. I seem to see a door at the other end. Valeria shrugged her white shoulders. Your eyes are better than mine, then, though I'm accounted sharp-eyed among the sea-rovers. They turned into an open door at random and traversed a series of empty chambers, floored like the hall, and with walls of the same green jade, or of marble, or ivory, or chalcedony, adorned with friezes of bronze, gold, or silver. In the ceilings the green fire-gems were set, and their light was as ghostly and elusive as Conan had predicted. Under the witch-fire glow the intruders moved like specters. Some of the chambers lacked this illumination, and their doorways showed black as the mouth of the pit. These Conan and Valeria avoided, keeping always to the lighted chambers. Cobwebs hung in the corners, but there was no perceptible accumulation of dust on the floor or on the tables and seats of marble, jade, or carnelian, which occupied the chambers. 
Here and there were rugs of that silk known as Kitan, which is practically indestructible. Nowhere did they find any windows or doors opening into streets or courts. Each door merely opened into another chamber or hall. Why don't we come to a street? grumbled Valeria. This place, or whatever we're in, must be as big as the king of Turan's seraglio. They must not have perished of plague, said Conan, meditating upon the mystery of the empty city. Otherwise we'd find skeletons. Maybe it became haunted and everybody got up and left. Maybe... Maybe hell, broke in Valeria rudely. We'll never know. Look at these friezes. They portray men. What race do they belong to? Conan scanned them and shook his head. I never saw people exactly like them. But there's the smack of the East about them. Vendhya, maybe, or Kosala. Were you a king in Kosala? she asked, masking her keen curiosity with derision. No, but I was a war chief of the Afgullis who live in the Himalayan mountains above the borders of Vendhya. These people favor the Kosalans, but why should Kosalans be building a city this far to west? The figures portrayed were those of slender, olive-skinned men and women, with finely chiseled exotic features. They wore filmy robes and many delicate jeweled ornaments, and were depicted mostly in attitudes of feasting, dancing, or love-making. Easterners, all right, grunted Conan. But from where, I don't know. They must have lived a disgustingly peaceful life, though, or they'd have scenes of wars and fights. Let's go up that stair. It was an ivory spiral that wound up from the chamber in which they were standing. They mounted three flights and came into a broad chamber on the fourth floor, which seemed to be the highest tier in the building. Skylights in the ceiling illuminated the room, in which light the fire-gems winked pallidly. Glancing through the doors they saw, except on one side, a series of similarly lighted chambers. This other door opened upon a balustrated gallery that overhung a hall much smaller than the one they had recently explored on the lower floor. Hell! Valeria sat down disgustedly on a jade bench. The people who deserted this city must have taken all their treasures with them. I'm tired of wandering through these bare rooms at random. All these upper chambers seem to be lighted, said Conan. I wish we could find a window that overlooked the city. Let's have a look through that door over there. You have a look, advised Valeria. I'm going to sit here and rest my feet. Conan disappeared through the door opposite that one opening upon the gallery, and Valeria leaned back with her hands clasped behind her head and thrust her booted legs out in front of her. These silent rooms and halls, with their gleaming green clusters of ornaments and burning crimson floors, were beginning to depress her. She wished they could go find their way out of the maze into which they had wandered and emerge into a street. She wondered idly what furtive dark feet had glided over these flaming floors in past centuries, how many deeds of cruelty and mystery those winking ceiling gems had blazed down upon. It was a faint noise that brought her out of her reflections. She was on her feet with her sword in her hand before she realized what had disturbed her. 
Conan had not returned, and she knew it was not he that she had heard. The sound had come from somewhere beyond the door that opened onto the gallery. Soundlessly, in her soft leather boots, she glided through it, crept across the balcony, and peered down between the heavy balustrades. A man was stealing along the hall. The sight of a human being in this supposedly deserted city was a startling shock. Crouching down behind the stone balusters, with every nerve tingling, Valeria glared down at the stealthy figure. The man in no way resembled the figures depicted in the friezes. He was slightly above middle height, very dark, though not negroid. He was naked but for a scantily silk clout that only partly covered his muscular hips, and a leather girdle, a hand's breadth broad about his lean waist. His long black hair hung in lank strands about his shoulders, giving him a wild appearance. He was gaunt, but knots and cords of muscles stood out on his arms and legs, without that fleshy padding that presents a pleasing symmetry of contour. He was built with an economy that was almost repellent. Yet it was not so much his physical appearance as his attitude that impressed the woman who watched him. He slunk along, stooped in a semi-crouch, his head turning from side to side. He grasped a wide-tipped blade in his right hand, and she saw it shake with the intensity of the emotion that gripped him. He was afraid, trembling in the grip of some dire terror. When he turned his head, she caught the blaze of wild eyes among the lank strands of black hair. He did not see her. On tiptoe, he glided across the hall and vanished through an open door. A moment later, she heard a choking cry, and then silence fell again. Consumed with curiosity, Valeria glided along the gallery until she came to a door above the one through which the man had passed. It opened into another, smaller gallery that encircled a large chamber. This chamber was on the third floor, and its ceiling was not so high as that of the hall. It was lighted only by the fire-stones, and their weird green glow left the spaces under the balcony in shadows. Valeria's eyes widened. The man she had seen was still in the chamber. He lay face down on a dark crimson carpet in the middle of the room. His body was limp, his arms spread wide. His curved sword lay near him. She wondered why he should lie there so motionless. Then her eyes narrowed as she stared down at the rug on which he lay. Beneath and about him the fabric showed a slightly different color, a deeper, brighter crimson. Shivering slightly, she crouched down closer behind the balustrade, intently scanning the shadows under the overhanging gallery. They gave up no secret. Suddenly another figure entered the grim drama. He was a man similar to the first, and he came in by a door opposite that which gave upon the hall. His eyes glared at the sight of the man on the floor, and he spoke something in a staccato voice that sounded like, Chick-Mack! The other did not move. The man stepped quickly across the floor, bent, gripped the fallen man's shoulder, and turned him over. A choking cry escaped him as the head fell back limply, disclosing a throat that had been severed from ear to ear. The man let the corpse fall back upon the blood-stained carpet and sprang to his feet, shaking like a wind-blown leaf. His face was an ashy mask of fear, 
but with one knee flexed for flight he froze, suddenly became as immobile as an image, staring across the chamber with dilated eyes. In the shadows beneath the balcony a ghostly light began to glow and grow, a light that was not part of the firestone gleam. Valeria felt her hair stir as she watched it, for dimly visible in the throbbing radiance there floated a human skull. And it was from this skull, human yet appallingly misshapen, that the spectral light seemed to emanate. It hung there like a disembodied head, conjured out of the night and the shadows, growing more and more distinct, human and yet not human as she knew humanity. The man stood motionless, an embodiment of paralyzed horror, staring fixedly at the apparition. The thing moved out from the wall, and a grotesque shadow moved with it. Slowly the shadow became visible as a man-like figure whose naked torso and limbs shone whitely with the hue of bleached bones. The bare skull on his shoulders grinned eyelessly in the midst of its unholy nimbus, and the man confronting it seemed unable to take his eyes from it. He stood still, his sword dangling from nerveless fingers, on his face the expression of a man bound by the spells of a mesmerist. Valeria realized that it was not fear alone that paralyzed him. Some hellish quality of that throbbing glow had robbed him of his power to think and act. She herself, safely above the scene, felt the subtle impact of a nameless emanation that was a threat to sanity. The horror swept towards its victim, and he moved at last, but only to drop his sword and sink to his knees, covering his eyes with his hands. Dumbly he awaited the stroke of the blade that now gleamed in the apparition's hand as it reared above him like death triumphant over mankind. Valeria acted according to the first impulse of her wayward nature. With one tigerish movement she was over the balustrade and dropping to the floor behind the awful shape. It wheeled at the thud of her soft boots on the floor, but even as it turned her keen blade lashed down and a fierce exultation swept her as she felt the edge cleave solid flesh and mortal bone. The apparition cried out gurglingly and went down, severed through shoulder, breastbone, and spine, and as it fell the burning skull rolled clear, revealing a lank mop of black hair and a dark face twisted in the convulsions of death. Beneath the horrific masquerade there was a human being, a man similar to the one kneeling supinely on the floor. The latter looked up at the sound of the blow and the cry, and now he glared in wide-eyed amazement at the white-skinned woman who stood over the corpse with a dripping sword in her hand. He staggered up, yammering as if the sight had almost unseated his reason. She was amazed to realize that she understood him. He was gibbering in the Stygian tongue, though in a dialect unfamiliar to her. Who, who are you? Whence come you? What do you in Zuzhatl? Then rushing on without waiting for her to reply. But you are a friend, goddess or devil. It makes no difference. You have slain the burning skull. It was but a man beneath it after all. We deemed it a demon they conjured up out of the catacombs. Listen. He stopped short in his ravings and stiffened, straining his ears with painful intensity. The girl heard nothing. "'We must hasten,' he whispered. "'They are west of the Great Hall. They may be all around us here. They may be creeping upon us even now.' 
He seized her wrist in a convulsive grasp she found hard to break. Whom do you mean by they? she demanded. He stared at her uncomprehendingly for an instant, as if he found her ignorance hard to understand. They? he stammered vaguely. Why, why the people of Zotalank, the clan of the man you slew, they who dwell by the eastern gate. You mean to say the city is inhabited? she exclaimed. Ay, ay, he was writhing in the impatience of apprehension. Come away, come quick, we must return to Tecutli. Where is that? she demanded. The quarter by the western gate. He had her wrist again and was pulling her toward the door through which he had first come. Great beads of perspiration dripped from his dark forehead and his eyes blazed with terror. Wait a minute, she growled, flinging off his hand. Keep your hands off me or I'll split your skull. What's all this about? Who are you? Where would you take me? He took a firm grip on himself, casting glances to all sides, and began speaking so fast his words tripped over each other. My name is Tecotl. I am of Tecutli. I and this man who lies with his throat cut came into the halls of science to try and ambush some of the Zotalancas. But we became separated, and I returned here to find him with his gullet slit. The burning skull did it, I know, just as he would have slain me had you not killed him. But perhaps he was not alone. Others may be stealing from Zotalank. The gods themselves blench at the fate of those they take alive. At the thought he shook as with an ague, and his dark skin grew ashy. Valeria frowned puzzledly at him. She sensed intelligence behind this rigmarole, but it was meaningless to her. She turned toward the skull, which still glowed and pulsed on the floor, and was reaching a booted toe tentatively toward it, when the man who called himself Tecotl sprang forward with a cry. Do not touch it! Do not even look at it! Madness and death lurk in it! The wizards of Zotalank understand its secret. They found it in the catacombs, where lie the bones of terrible kings who ruled in Zushatl in the black centuries of the past. To gaze upon it freezes the blood and withers the brain of a man who understands not its mystery. Touch it, and it causes madness and destruction." She scowled at him uncertainly. He was not a reassuring figure with his lean, muscle-knotted frame and snaky locks. In his eyes behind the glow of terror lurked a weird light she had never seen in the eyes of a man wholly sane. Yet he seemed sincere in his protestations. Come he begged, reaching for her hand and then recoiling as he remembered her warning. You are a stranger. How you came here I do not know, but if you were a goddess or a demon, come to aid Tecutli, you would know all the things you have asked me. You must be from beyond the great forest whence our ancestors came, but you are our friend or you would not have slain my enemy. Come, quickly, before the Zotalancas find us and slay us. From his repellent, impassioned face she glanced to the sinister skull, smoldering and glowing on the floor near the dead man. It was like a skull seen in a dream, undeniably human, yet with disturbing distortions and malformations of contour and outline. In life the wearer of that skull must have presented an alien and monstrous aspect. Life? It seemed to possess some sort of life of its own. Its jaws yawned at her and snapped together. Its radiance grew brighter, more vivid, yet the impression of nightmare grew, too. 
It was a dream. All life was a dream. It was Tecatl's urgent voice which snapped Valeria back from the dim gulfs whither she was drifting. Do not look at the skull! Do not look at the skull! It was a far cry from across unreckoned voids. Valeria shook herself like a lion shaking his mane. Her vision cleared. Tecatl was chattering. In life it howls the awful brain of a king of magicians. It holds still the life and fire of magic drawn from outer spaces. With a curse Valeria leaped, lithe as a panther, and the skull crashed to flaming bits under her swinging sword. Somewhere in the room, or in the void, or in the dim reaches of her consciousness, an inhuman voice cried out in pain and rage. Tagatl's hand was plucking at her arm, and he was gibbering. You have broken it. You have destroyed it. Not all the black arts in Zotalank can rebuild it. Come away. Come away quickly, now. But I can't go, she protested. I have a friend somewhere nearby. The flare of his eyes cut her short as he stared past her with an expression grown ghastly. She wheeled just as four men rushed through as many doors converging on the pair in the center of the chamber. They were like the others she had seen, the same knotted muscles bulging on otherwise gaunt limbs, the same lank blue-black hair, the same mad glare in their wide eyes. They were armed and clad like Tecatl, but on the breast of each was painted a white skull. There were no challenges or war cries. Like blood-mad tigers, the men of Zoltalank sprang at the throats of their enemies. Tecatl met them with the fury of desperation, ducked the swipe of a wide-headed blade, and grappled with the wielder, and bore him to the floor where they rolled and wrestled in murderous silence. The other three swarmed on Valeria, their weird eyes red as the eyes of mad dogs. She killed the first who came within reach before he could strike a blow, her long straight blade splitting his skull even as his own sword lifted for a stroke. She sidestepped a thrust even as she parried a slash. Her eyes danced and her lips smiled without mercy. Again she was Valeria of the Red Brotherhood, and the hum of her steel was like a bridal song in her ears. Her sword darted past a blade that sought to parry and sheathed six inches of its point in a leather-guarded midriff. The man gasped agonizedly and went to his knees, but his tall mate lunged in, in ferocious silence, raining blow on blow so furiously that Valeria had no opportunity to counter. She stepped back coolly, parrying the strokes and watching for her chance to thrust home. He could not long keep up that flailing whirlwind. His arm would tire, his wind would fail, he would weaken, falter, and then her blade would slide smoothly into his heart. A sidelong glance showed her Tecatl kneeling on the breast of his antagonist and striving to break the other's hold on his wrist and to drive home a dagger. Sweat beaded on the forehead of the man facing her, and his eyes were like burning coals. Smite as he would, he could not break past nor beat down her guard. His breath came in gusty gulps. His blows began to fall erratically. She stepped back to draw him out and felt her thighs locked in an iron grip. She had forgotten the wounded man on the floor. Crouching on his knees, he held her with both arms locked about her legs, and his mate croaked in triumph and began working his way around to come at her from the left side. Valeria wrenched and tore savagely, but in vain. 
She could free herself of this clinging menace with a downward flick of her sword, but in that instant the curved blade of the tall warrior would crash through her skull. The wounded man began to worry at her bare thigh with his teeth like a wild beast. She reached down with her left hand and gripped his long hair, forcing his head back so that his white teeth and rolling eyes gleamed up at her. The tall Zotalank cried out fiercely and leaped in, smiting with all the fury of his arm. Awkwardly she parried the stroke, and it beat the flat of her blade down on her head so that she saw sparks flash before her eyes and staggered. Up went the sword again, with a low, beast-like cry of triumph. And then a giant form loomed behind the Zoltalank, and steel flashed like a jet of blue lightning. The cry of the warrior broke short as he went down like an ox beneath the pole-axe, his brains gushing from his skull that had been split to the throat. Conan! gasped Valeria. In a gust of passion she turned on the Zotalank, whose long hair she still gripped in her left hand. Dog of hell! Her blade swished as it cut the air in an upswinging arc with a blur in the middle, and the headless body slumped down, spurting blood. She hurled the severed head across the room. What the devil's going on here? Conan bestrode the corpse of the man he had killed, broadsword in hand, glaring about him in amazement. Tecatl was rising from the twitching figure of the last Zoltalank, shaking red drops from his dagger. He was bleeding from the stab deep in the thigh. He stared at Conan with dilated eyes. What is all this? Conan demanded again, not yet recovered from the stunning surprise of finding Valeria engaged in a savage battle with these fantastic figures in a city he had thought empty and uninhabited. Returning from an aimless exploration of the upper chambers to find Valeria missing from the room where he had left her, he had followed the sounds of strife that burst on his dumbfounded ears. Five dead dogs! exclaimed Tecatl, his flaming eyes reflecting a ghastly exaltation. Five slain, five crimson nails for the black pillar. The gods of blood be thanked! He lifted quivering hands on high, and then, with the face of a fiend, he spat on the corpses and stamped on their faces, dancing in his ghoulish glee. His recent allies eyed him in amazement, and Conan asked in the Aquilonian tongue, Who is this madman? Valeria shrugged her shoulders. He says his name's Tecatl. From his babblings I gather that his people live at one end of this crazy city and these others at the other end. Maybe we'd better go with him. He seems friendly, and it's easy to see that the other clan isn't. Tecatl had ceased his dancing and was listening again, his head tilted sidewise, like a dog, triumph struggling with fear in his repellent countenance. Come away now, he whispered. We have done enough. Five dead dogs. My people will welcome you. They will honor you. But come. It is far to Tecutli. At any moment the Zoltalankis may come on us in numbers too great even for your swords. Lead the way, grunted Conan. Tecatli instantly mounted a stair leading up to the gallery, beckoning them to follow him, which they did, moving rapidly to keep on his heels. Having reached the gallery, he plunged into a door that opened toward the west, and hurried through chamber after chamber, each lighted by skylights or green fire-jewels. What sort of place can this be? muttered Valeria under her breath. 
Crom knows, answered Conan. I've seen his kind before, though. They live on the shores of Lake Zuad, near the border of Kush. They're a sort of mongrel, Stygians mixed with another race that wandered into Stygia from the east some centuries ago and were absorbed by them. They're called Tlazitlans. I'm willing to bet it wasn't they who built this city, though. Tecatl's fear did not seem to diminish as they drew away from the chamber where the dead men lay. He kept twisting his head on his shoulder to listen for sounds of pursuit, and stared with burning intensity into every doorway they passed. Valeria shivered in spite of herself. She feared no man. But the weird floor beneath her feet, the uncanny jewels over her head, dividing the lurking shadows among them, the stealth and terror of their guide impressed her with a nameless apprehension, a sensation of lurking in human peril. They may be between us and Tecutli, he whispered once. We must beware lest they be lying in wait. Why don't we get out of this infernal place and take to the streets? demanded Valeria. There are no streets in Zuchatl, he answered. No squares or open courts. The whole city is built like one giant palace under one great roof. The nearest approach to a street is the great hall which traverses the city from the north gate to the south gate. The only doors opening into the outer world are the city gates through which no living man has passed for fifty years. How long have you dwelt here? asked Conan. I was born in the castle of Tecutli thirty-five years ago. I have never set foot outside the city. For the love of the gods, let us go silently. These halls may be full of lurking devils. Olmec shall tell you all when we reach Tecutli. So in silence they glided on, with the green firestones blinking overhead and the flaming floors smoldering under their feet and it seemed to Valeria as if they fled through hell, guided by a dark-faced, lank-haired goblin. Yet it was Conan who halted them as they were crossing an unusually wide chamber. His wilderness-bred ears were keener even than the ears of Tecatl, wetted though these were by a lifetime of warfare in those silent corridors. You think some of your enemies may be ahead of us, lying in ambush? They prowl through these rooms at all hours, answered Tecatl. As do we. The halls and chambers between Tecutli and Zoltalank are a disputed region, owned by no man. We call it the Halls of Silence. Why do you ask? Because men are in the chambers ahead of us, answered Conan. I heard steel clink against stone. Again a shaking seized Tecatl, and he clenched his teeth to keep them from chattering. Perhaps they are your friends, suggested Valeria. We dare not chance it, he panted and moved with frenzied activity. He turned aside and glided through a doorway on the left which led into a chamber from which an ivory staircase wound down into darkness. This leads to an unlighted corridor below us, he hissed, great beads of perspiration standing out on his brow. They may be lurking there, too. It may all be a trick to draw us into it, but we must take the chance that they have laid their ambush in the rooms above. Come, swiftly now. Softly as phantoms they descended the stair and came to the mouth of a corridor black as night. They crouched there for a moment, listening, and then melted into it. As they moved along, Valeria's flesh crawled between her shoulders in momentary expectation of a sword thrust in the dark. 
But for Conan's iron fingers gripping her arm, she had no physical cognizance of her companions. Neither made as much noise as a cat would have made. The darkness was absolute. One hand, outstretched, touched a wall and occasionally felt a door under her fingers. The hallway seemed interminable. Suddenly they were galvanized by a sound behind them. Valeria's flesh crawled anew, for she recognized it as the soft opening of a door. Men had come into the corridor behind them. Even with the thought, she stumbled over something that felt like a human skull. It rolled across the floor with an appalling clatter. "'Run!' yelped Tecatl, a note of hysteria in his voice, and was away down the corridor like a flying ghost. Again Valeria felt Conan's hand bearing her up and sweeping her along as they raced after their guide. Conan could see in the dark no better than she, but he possessed a sort of instinct that made his course unerring. Without his support and guidance she would have fallen or stumbled against the wall. Down the corridor they sped, while the swift patter of flying feet drew closer and closer. And then suddenly Tecatl panted, "'Here is the stair! After me, quick! Ah, quick!' His hand came out of the darkness and caught Valeria's wrist as she stumbled blindly on the steps. She felt herself half-dragged, half-lifted up the winding stair, while Conan released her and turned on the steps, his ears and instincts telling him their foes were hard at their backs, and the sounds were not all those of human feet. Something came writhing up the steps, something that slithered and rustled and brought a chill in the air with it. Conan lashed down with his great sword and felt the blade cheer through something that might have been flesh and bone and cut deep into the stair beneath. Something touched his foot that chilled like the touch of frost, and then the darkness beneath him was disturbed by a frightful thrashing and lashing, and a man cried out in agony. The next moment Conan was racing up the winding staircase and through a door that stood open at the head. Valeria and Tecatl were already through and Tecatl slammed the door and shot a bolt across it, the first Conan had seen since they left the outer gate. Then he turned and ran across the well-lighted chamber into which they had come, and as they passed through the farther door Conan glanced back and saw the door groaning and straining under heavy pressure, violently applied from the other side. Though Tecatl did not abate either his speed or his caution, he seemed more confident now. He had the air of a man who has come into familiar territory with call of friends. But Conan renewed his terror by asking, What was that thing that I fought on the stair? The men of Zoltalank, answered Tecatl, without looking back. I told you the halls were full of them. This wasn't a man, grunted Conan. It was something that crawled, and it was as cold as ice to the touch. I think I cut it asunder. It fell back on the men who were following us, and must have killed one of them in its death throes." Tecatl's head jerked back, his face ashy again. Convulsively he quickened his pace. It, it was the crawler, a monster, they have brought out of the catacombs to aid them. What it is we, we do not know, but we have found our people hideously slain by it. In Set's name, hasten! If they put it on our trail, it will follow us to the very doors of Tecotli." "'I doubt it,' grunted Conan. That was a shrewd cut I dealt it on the stair." "'Hasten! Hasten!' groaned Tecatl. 
They ran through a series of green-lit chambers, traversed by a broad hall, and halted before a giant bronze door. Tagatl said, This is Tecutli. Chapter 3 The People of the Feud Tecatl smote on the bronze door with his clenched hand, and then turned sideways so that he could watch back along the hall. Men have been smitten down before this door when they thought they were safe, he said. Why don't they open the door? asked Conan. They are looking at us through the eye, answered Tecatl. They are puzzled at the sight of you. He lifted his voice and called, Open the door, Zekalin. It is I, Tecatl, with friends from the great world beyond the forest. They will open, he assured his allies. They'd better do it in a hurry, then, said Conan grimly. I hear something crawling along the floor beyond the hall. Tecatl went ashy again and attacked the door with his fists, screaming, Open, you fools, open! The crawler is at our heels! Even as he beat and shouted, the great bronze door swung noiselessly back, revealing a heavy chain across the entrance, over which spearheads bristled and fierce countenances regarded them intently for an instant. Then the chain was dropped, and Tecatl grasped the arms of his friends in a nervous frenzy and fairly dragged them over the threshold. A glance over his shoulder just as the door was closing showed Conan the long, dim vista of the hall and dimly framed at the other end an ophidian shape that writhed slowly and painfully into view, flowing in a dull-hued length from a chamber door, its hideous blood-stained head wagging drunkenly. Then the closing door shut off the view. Inside the square chamber into which they had come, heavy bolts were drawn across the door and the chain locked into place. The door was made to stand the battering of a siege. Four men stood on guard of the same lank-haired, dark-skinned breed as Tecatl, with spears in their hands and swords at their hips. In the wall near the door there was a complicated contrivance of mirrors, which Conan guessed was the eye Tecatl had mentioned, so arranged that a narrow crystal-paned slot in the wall could be looked through from within, without being discernible from without. The four guardsmen stared at the strangers with wonder, but asked no questions, nor did Tecatl vouchsafe any information. He moved with easy confidence now, as if he had shed his cloak of indecision and fear the instant he crossed the threshold. Come, he urged his new-found friends, but Conan glanced toward the door. What about those fellows who are following us? Won't they try to storm that door? Tecatl shook his head. They know they cannot break down the door of the eagle. They will flee back to Zoltalank with their crawling fiend. Come, I will take you to the rulers of Tecutli. One of the four guards opened the door opposite the one by which they had entered, and they passed through into a hallway which, like most of the rooms on that level, was lighted by both the slot-like skylights and the cluster of winking fire-gems. But unlike the other rooms they had traversed, this hall showed evidences of occupation. Velvet tapestries adorned the glossy jade walls, rich rugs were on the crimson floors, and the ivory seats, benches, and divans were littered with satin cushions. The hall ended in an ornate door, before which stood no guard, 
Without ceremony, Tecotl thrust the door open and ushered his friends into the broad chamber, where some thirty dark-skinned men and women lounging on satin-covered couches sprang up with exclamations of amazement. The men, all except one, were of the same type as Tecotl, and the women were equally dark and strange-eyed, though not unbeautiful in a weird, dark way. They wore sandals, golden breastplates, and scanty silk skirts supported by gem-crusted girdles, and their black manes cut square at their naked shoulders were bound with silver circlets. On a wide ivory seat on a jade dais sat a man and a woman who differed subtly from the others. He was a giant with an enormous sweep of breast and the shoulders of a bull. Unlike the others, he was bearded with a thick blue-black beard which fell almost to his broad girdle. He wore a robe of purple silk which reflected changing sheens of color with his every movement, and one wide sleeve drawn back to his elbow revealed a forearm, massive with corded muscles. The band which confined his blue-black locks was set with glittering jewels. The woman beside him sprang to her feet with a startled exclamation as the strangers entered and her eyes passing over Conan fixed themselves with burning intensity on Valeria. She was tall and lethe by far the most beautiful woman in the room. She was clad more scantily even than the others, for instead of a skirt she wore merely a broad strip of gilt-worked purple cloth fastened to the middle of her girdle which fell below her knees. Another strip at the back of her girdle completed that part of her costume, which she wore with a cynical indifference. Her breastplates and the circlet about her temples were adorned with gems. In her eyes alone, of all the dark-skinned people, there lurked no brooding gleam of madness. She spoke no word after her first exclamation. She stood tensely, her hands clenched, staring at Valeria. The man on the ivory seat had not risen. "'Prince Olmec?' spoke Tecotl, bowing low, with arms outspread and the palms of his hands turned upward. "'I bring allies from the world beyond the forest. In the chamber of Tezcati the Burning Skull slew Chikmek, my companion.' "'The Burning Skull?' It was a shuddering whisper of fear from the people of Tecutli. "'Aye.' Then came I and found Chikmek lying with his throat cut. Before I could flee, the burning skull came upon me, and when I looked upon it, my blood became as ice and the marrow of my bones melted. I could neither fight nor run. I could only await the stroke. Then came this white-skinned woman and struck him down with her sword, and lo, it was only a dog of Zotalank, with white paint upon his skin and the living skull of an ancient wizard upon his head. Now that skull lies in many pieces, and the dog who wore it is a dead man. An indescribably fierce exaltation edged the last sentence and was echoed in the low, savage exclamations from the crowding listeners. But wait, exclaimed Tecotl, there is more. While I talked with the woman, four Zotalanks came upon us. One I slew. There is the stab in my thigh to prove how desperate was the fight. Two, the woman killed, but we were hard-pressed when this man came into the fray and split the skull of the fourth. Aye, five crimson nails there are to be driven into the pillar of vengeance. He pointed at a black column of ebony which stood behind the dais. Hundreds of red dots scarred its polished surface. 
the bright scarlet heads of heavy copper nails driven into the black wood. Five red nails for five Zotalenka lives, exalted Tecatl, and the horrible exaltation in the faces of the listeners made them inhuman. Who are these people? asked Olmec, and his voice was like the low, deep rumble of a distant bull. None of the people of Zuchatl spoke loudly. It was as if they had absorbed into their souls the silence of the empty halls and deserted chambers. I am Conan, a Cimmerian, answered the barbarian briefly. This woman is Valeria of the Red Brotherhood, an Aquilonian pirate. We are deserters from an army on the Darfar border far to the north and are trying to reach the coast. The woman on the dais spoke loudly, her words tripping in her haste. You can never reach the coast. There is no escape from Zuchatl. You will spend the rest of your lives in this city. What do you mean? growled Conan, clapping his hand to his hilt and stepping about so as to face both the dais and the rest of the room. Are you telling us we're prisoners? She did not mean that, interposed Olmec. We are your friends. We would not restrain you against your will. But I fear other circumstances will make it impossible for you to leave Zuchatl. His eyes flickered to Valeria, and he lowered them quickly. This woman is Tessela, he said. She is a princess of Tecutli. But let food and drink be brought our guests. Doubtless they are hungry and weary from their long travels. He indicated an ivory table, and after an exchange of glances the adventurers seated themselves. The Cimmerian was suspicious. His fierce blue eyes roved about the chamber, and he kept his sword close to his hand. But an invitation to eat and drink never found him backward. His eyes kept wandering to Tassella, but the princess had eyes only for his white-skinned companion. Tagatl, who had bound a strip of silk about his wounded thigh, placed himself at the table to attend to the wants of his friends, seeming to consider it a privilege and honor to see after their needs. He inspected the food and drink the others brought in gold vessels and dishes, and tasted each before he placed it before his guests. While they ate, Olmec sat in silence on his ivory seat, watching them from under his broad black brows. Tessela sat beside him, chin cupped in her hands and her elbows resting on her knees. Her dark, enigmatic eyes burning with a mysterious light never left Valeria's supple figure. Behind her seat a sullen, handsome girl waved an ostrich-plume fan with a slow rhythm. The food was fruit of an exotic kind, unfamiliar to the wanderers, but very palatable and the drink was a light crimson wine that carried a heady tang. "'You have come from afar,' said Olmec at last. "'I have read the books of our fathers. Aquilonia lies beyond the lands of the Stygians and the Shemites, beyond Argos and Zingara, and Cimmeria lies beyond Aquilonia.' "'We each have a roving foot,' answered Conan carelessly. "'How you won through the forest is a wonder to me.' quoth Olmec. In bygone days a thousand fighting men scarcely were able to carve a road through its perils. We encountered a bench-legged monstrosity about the size of a mastodon, said Conan casually, holding out his wine goblet, which Tecatl filled with evident pleasure. But when we killed it we had no further trouble. The wine vessel slipped from Tecatl's hand to crash on the floor. His dusky skin went ashy. 
Olmec started to his feet, an image of stunned amazement and a low gasp of awe or terror breathed up from the others. Some slipped to their knees as if their legs would not support them. Only Tascela seemed not to have heard. Conan glared about him bewilderedly. What's the matter? What are you gaping about? You... you slew the dragon god? God? I killed a dragon. Why not? It was trying to gobble us up. But dragons are immortal, exclaimed Olmec. They slay each other, but no man ever killed a dragon. The thousand fighting men of our ancestors who fought their way to Zushatl could not prevail against them. Their swords broke like twigs against their scales. If your ancestors had thought to dip their spears in the poisonous juice of Durketa's apples, quoth Conan, with his mouth full, and jab them in the eyes or mouth or somewhere like that, they'd have seen that dragons are not more immortal than any other chunk of beef. The carcass lies at the edge of the trees just within the forest. If you don't believe me, go and look for yourself. Olmec shook his head, not in disbelief, but in wonder. It was because of the dragons that our ancestors took refuge in Zushatl, he said. They dared not pass through the plain and plunge into the forest beyond. Scores of them were seized and devoured by the monsters before they could reach the city. Then your ancestors didn't build Zushatl? asked Valeria. It was ancient when they first came into the land. How long it had stood here, not even its degenerate inhabitants knew. Your people came from Lake Zuad? questioned Conan. Aye. More than half a century ago, a tribe of the Tlatzitlans rebelled against the Stygian king, and being defeated in battle, fled southward. For many weeks they wandered over grasslands, desert, and hills, and at last they came into the great forest, a thousand fighting men with their women and children. It was in the forest that the dragons fell upon them and tore many to pieces. So the people fled in a frenzy of fear before them, and at last came into the plain and saw the city of Zushatl in the midst of it. They camped before the city, not daring to leave the plain, for the night was made hideous with the noise of the battling monsters throughout the forest. They made war incessantly upon one another, yet they came not into the plain. The people of the city shut their gates and shot arrows at our people from the walls. The Tlazitlans were imprisoned on the plain as if the ring of the forest had been a great wall, for to venture into the woods would have been madness. That night there came secretly to their camp a slave from the city, one of their own blood, who with a band of exploring soldiers had wandered into the forest long before when he was a young man. The dragons had devoured all his companions, but he had been taken into the city to dwell in servitude. His name was Tolkemec. A flame lighted the dark eyes at mention of the name, and some of the people muttered obscenely and spat. He promised to open the gates to the warriors. He asked only that all captives taken be delivered into his hands. At dawn he opened the gates. The warriors swarmed in, and the halls of Zushatl ran red. Only a few hundred folk dwelt there, decaying remnants of a once great race. Tolkemec said they came from the east long ago, from old Kosala, when the ancestors of those who now dwell in Kosala came up from the south and drove forth the original inhabitants of the land. 
They wandered far westward and finally found this forest-girdled plain inhabited then by a tribe of black people. These they enslaved and set to building a city. From the hills to the east they brought jade and marble and lapis lazuli and gold, silver and copper. Herds of elephants provided them with ivory. When their city was completed they slew all the black slaves, and their magicians made a terrible magic to guard the city, for by their necromantic arts they recreated the dragons which had once dwelt in this lost land, and whose monstrous bones they found in the forest. Those bones they clothed in flesh and life, and the living beasts walked the earth as they walked it when time was young. But the wizards wove a spell that kept them in the forest, and they came not into the plain. So for many centuries the people of Zushatl dwelt in their city, cultivating the fertile plain, until their wise men learned how to grow fruit within the city, fruit which is not planted in soil but obtains its nourishment out of the air. And then they let the irrigation ditches run dry, and dwelt more and more in luxurious sloth until decay seized them and they were a dying race when our ancestors broke through the forest and came into the plain their wizards had died and the people had forgot their ancient necromancy they could fight neither by sorcery nor by the sword well our fathers slew the people of zuchatl all except a hundred which were given living into the hands of tolkemec who had been their slave, and for many days and nights the halls re-echoed to their screams under the agony of his tortures. So the Tlazitlans dwelt here for a while in peace, ruled by the brothers Tecutli and Zoltalank, and by Tolkemec. Tolkemec took a girl of the tribe to wife, and because he had opened the gates, and because he knew many of the arts of the Zushatlans, he shared the rule of the tribe with the brothers who had led the rebellion and the fight. For a few years, then, they dwelt at peace within the city, doing little but eating, drinking, and making love, and raising children. There was no necessity to till the plain, for Tolkemec taught them how to cultivate the air-devouring fruits. Besides, the slaying of the Zushatlans broke the spell that held the dragons in the forest, and they came nightly and bellowed about the gates of the city. The plain ran red with the blood of their eternal warfare, and it was then that— He bit his tongue in the midst of the sentence, then presently continued, but Valeria and Conan felt that he had checked an admission he had considered unwise. Five years they dwelt in peace. Then— Olmec's eyes rested briefly on the silent woman at his side. Zotalank took a woman to wife, a woman whom both Tecultli and old Tolmec desired. In his madness Tecultli stole her from her husband. Aye, she went willingly enough. Tolkemec, to spite Zotalank, aided Tecultli. Zotalank demanded that she be given back to him, and the council of the tribe decided that the matter should be left to the woman. She chose to remain with Tecultli. In wrath, Zoltalank sought to take her back by force, and the retainers of the brothers came to blows in the great hall. There was much bitterness. Blood was shed on both sides. The quarrel became a feud, the feud an open war. From the welter three factions emerged, Tegutli, Zoltalank, and Tolkemec. Already in the days of peace they had divided the city between them. Tegutli dwelt in the western quarter of the city. Zotalank in the eastern, and Tolkemec with his family by the southern gate. 
Anger and resentment and jealousy blossomed into bloodshed and rape and murder. Once the sword was drawn, there was no turning back, for blood called for blood, and vengeance followed swift on the heels of atrocity. Tecutli fought with Zotalank, and Tolkemec aided first one and then the other, betraying each faction as it fitted his purposes. Tecutli and his people withdrew into the quarter of the western gate where we now sit. Zushatl is built in the shape of an oval. Tecutli, which took its name from its prince, occupies the western end of the oval. The people blocked up all doors connecting the quarter with the rest of the city except one on each floor which could be defended easily. They went into the pits below the city and built a wall cutting off the western end of the catacombs, where lie the bodies of the ancient Zushatlans and those of Tlazitlans slain in the feud. They dwelt as in a besieged castle, making sorties and forays on their enemies. The people of Zotalank likewise fortified the eastern quarter of the city, and Tolkemec did likewise with the quarter by the southern gate. The central part of the city was left bare and uninhabited. Those empty halls and chambers became a battleground and a region of brooding terror. Tolkemec warred on both clans. He was a fiend in the form of a human worse than Zotalank. He knew many secrets of the city, and he never told the others. From the crypts of the catacombs he plundered the dead of their grisly secrets, secrets of ancient kings and wizards long forgotten by the degenerate Zushatlans our ancestors slew. But all his magic did not aid him the night we of Tecutli stormed his castle and butchered all his people. Tolkemec we tortured for many days. His voice sank to a caressing slur, and a faraway look grew in his eyes, as if he looked back over the years to a scene which caused him intense pleasure. Aye, we kept the life in him until he screamed for death as for a bride. At last we took him living from the torture chamber and cast him into a dungeon for the rats to gnaw as he died. From that dungeon somehow he managed to escape and dragged himself into the catacombs. There, without doubt, he died, for the only way out of the catacombs beneath Tecutli is through Tecutli, and he never emerged by that way. His bones were never found, and the superstitious among our people swear that his ghost haunts the crypts to this day, wailing among the bones of the dead. Twelve years ago we butchered the people of Tolkemec, but the feud raged on between Tecutli and Zotalank, as it will rage until the last man, the last woman is dead. It was fifty years ago that Tecutli stole the wife of Zotalank. Half a century the feud has endured. I was born into it. All in this chamber except Tassela were born into it. We expect to die in it. We are a dying race, even as those Zushatlans our ancestors slew. When the feud began there were hundreds in each faction. Now we of Tecutli number only these you see before you, and the men who guard the four doors, forty in all. How many Zotalankas there are we do not know, but I doubt if they are much more numerous than we. For fifteen years no children have been born to us, and we have seen none among the Zotalankas. We are dying, but before we die we will slay as many as the men of Zotalank as the gods permit. 
and with his weird eyes blazing, Olmec spoke long of that grisly feud, fought out in silent chambers and dim halls under the blaze of the green fire-jewels, on floors smoldering with the flames of hell and splashed with deeper crimson from severed veins. In that long butchery a whole generation had perished. Zoltalank was dead, long ago, slain in a grim battle on an ivory stair. Tecutli was dead, flayed alive by the maddened Zoltalankus who had captured him. Without emotion Olmec told of the hideous battles fought in black corridors, of ambushes on twisting stairs and red butcheries. With a redder, more abysmal gleam in his deep, dark eyes, he told of men and women flayed alive, mutilated and dismembered, of captives howling under torture so ghastly that even the barbarous Sumerian grunted. No wonder Tecatl had trembled with the terror of capture. Yet he had gone forth to slay, if he could, driven by hate that was stronger than his fear. Olmec spoke further of dark and mysterious matters of black magic and wizardry conjured out of the black night of the catacombs, of weird creatures invoked out of darkness for horrible allies. In these things the Zoltalankus had the advantage, for it was in the eastern catacombs where lay the bones of the greatest wizards of the ancient Zushotlans with their immemorial secrets. Valeria listened with morbid fascination. The feud had become a terrible elemental power, driving the people of Zuchatl inexorably on to doom and extinction. It filled their whole lives. They were born in it, and they expected to die in it. They never left their barricaded castle except to steal forth into the halls of silence that lay between the opposing fortresses to slay and be slain. Sometimes the raiders returned with frantic captives, or with grim tokens of victory in fight. Sometimes they did not return at all, or returned only as severed limbs cast down before the bolted bronze doors. It was a ghastly, unreal nightmare existence these people lived, shut off from the rest of the world, caught together like rabid rats in the same trap, butchering one another through the years, crouching and creeping through the sunless corridors to maim and torture and murder. While Olmec talked, Valeria felt the blazing eyes of Tassella fixed upon her. The princess seemed not to hear what Olmec was saying. Her expression as he narrated victories or defeats did not mirror the wild rage or fiendish exaltation that alternated on the faces of the other Tecutli. The feud that was an obsession to her clansmen seemed meaningless to her. Valeria found her indifferent callousness more repugnant than Olmec's naked ferocity. And we can never leave the city, said Olmec. For fifty years no one has left it except those— Again he checked himself. Even without the peril of the dragons, he continued, we who were born and raised in the city would not dare leave it. We have never set foot outside the walls. We are not accustomed to the open sky and the naked sun. No, we were born in Zushatl, and in Zushatl we shall die. Well— said Conan. With your leave, we'll take our chances with the dragons. This feud is none of our business. If you'll show us to the west gate, we'll be on our way. Tassella's hands clenched, and she started to speak, but Olmec interrupted her. It is nearly nightfall. If you wander forth into the plain by night, you will certainly fall prey to the dragons. 
We crossed it last night and slept in the open without seeing any, returned Conan. Tascela smiled mirthlessly. You dare not leave Zuchatl. Conan glared at her with instinctive antagonism. She was not looking at him, but at the woman opposite him. I think they dare, retorted Olmec. But look you, Conan and Valeria, the gods must have sent you to us to cast victory into the laps of the Tecultli. You are professional fighters. Why not fight for us? We have wealth in abundance. Precious jewels are as common in Zuchatl as cobblestones are in the cities of the world. Some the Zuchatlans brought with them from Kosala. Some like the firestones they found in the hills to the east. Aid us to wipe out the Zoltalankas, and we will give you all the jewels you can carry. And you will help us destroy the dragons? asked Valeria. With bows and poisoned arrows, thirty men could slay all the dragons in the forest. Aye, replied Olmec promptly. We have forgotten the use of the bow in years of hand-to-hand -hand fighting, but we can learn again. What do you say? Valeria inquired of Conan. We're both penniless vagabonds, he grinned heartily. I'd as soon kill Zoltalankas as anybody. Then you agree? exclaimed Olmec, while Tecatl fairly hugged himself with delight. Aye, and now suppose you show us chambers where we can sleep so we can be fresh tomorrow for the beginning of the slaying. Olmec nodded and waved a hand, and Tecatl and a woman led the adventurers into a corridor which led through a door off to the left of the jade dais. A glance back showed Valeria Olmec sitting on his throne, chin on knotted fist, staring after them. His eyes burned with a weird flame. Tassela leaned back in her seat, whispering to the sullen-faced maid Yasala, who leaned over her shoulder, her ear to the princess's moving lips. The hallway was not so broad as most they had traversed, but it was long. Presently the woman halted, opened a door, and drew aside for Valeria to enter. "'Wait a minute,' growled Conan. "'Where do I sleep?' Tecatl pointed to a chamber across the hallway, but one door farther down. Conan hesitated and seemed inclined to raise an objection, but Valeria smiled spitefully at him and shut the door in his face. He muttered something uncomplimentary about women in general, and strode off down the corridor after Tecatl. In the ornate chamber where he was to sleep, he glanced up at the slot-like skylights. Some were wide enough to admit the body of a slender man, supposing the glass were broken. "'Why don't these Zoltalankas come over the roofs and shatter those skylights?' he asked. "'They cannot be broken,' answered Tecatl. Besides, the roofs would be hard to clamber over. They are mostly spires and domes and steep ridges. He volunteered more information about the castle of Tecotli. Like the rest of the city, it contained four stories, or tiers of chambers, with towers jutting up from the roof. Each tier was named. Indeed, the people of Zuchatl had a name for each chamber, hall, and stair in the city, as people of more normal cities designated streets and quarters. In Tecutli the floors were named the Eagle's Tier, the Ape's Tier, the Tiger's Tier, and the Serpent's Tier, in the order as enumerated, the Eagle's Tier being the highest or fourth floor. "'Who is Tassala?' asked Conan. "'Olmac's wife?' 
Tagadal shuddered and glanced furtively about him before answering. No, she is... Tassala. She was the wife of Zoltalank, the woman Tecutli stole to start the feud. What are you talking about? demanded Conan. That woman is beautiful and young. Are you trying to tell me that she was a wife fifty years ago? Aye, I swear it. She was a full-grown woman when the Tlazitlans journeyed from Lake Zuad. It was because the king of Stygia desired her for a concubine that Zoltalank and his brother rebelled and fled into the wilderness. She is a witch who possesses the secret of perpetual youth. What's that? asked Conan. Tecatl shuddered again. Ask me not. I, I dare not speak. It is too grisly even for Zushatl. And touching his finger to his lips, he glided from the chamber. Chapter 4 Scent of Black Lotus Valeria unbuckled her sword-belt and laid it with the sheathed weapon on the couch where she meant to sleep. She noted that the doors were supplied with bolts and asked where they led. "'Those lead into adjoining chambers,' answered the woman, indicating the doors on right and left. "'That one,' pointing to a copper-bound door opposite that which opened into the corridor, "'leads to a corridor which runs to a stair that descends into the catacombs. Do not fear. Naught can harm you here.' "'Who spoke of fear?' snapped Valeria. I just like to know what sort of harbor I'm dropping anchor in. No, I don't want you to sleep at the foot of my couch. I'm not accustomed to being waited on, not by women anyway. You have my leave to go. Alone in the room, the pirate shot the bolts on all the doors, kicked off her boots, and stretched luxuriously out on the couch. She imagined Conan similarly situated across the corridor, but her feminine vanity prompted her to visualize him as scowling and muttering with chagrin as he cast himself on his solitary couch, and she grinned with gleeful malice as she prepared herself for slumber. Outside night had fallen. In the halls of Zushatl the green fire-jewels blazed like the eyes of prehistoric cats. Somewhere among the dark towers a night wind moaned like a restless spirit. Through the dim passages stealthy figures began stealing like disembodied shadows. Valeria awoke suddenly on her couch. In the dusky emerald glow of the fire-gems she saw a shadowy figure bending over her. For a bemused instant the apparition seemed part of the dream she had been dreaming. She had seemed to lie on the couch in the chamber as she was actually lying while over her pulsed and throbbed a gigantic black blossom, so enormous that it hid the ceiling. Its exotic perfume pervaded her being, inducing a delicious sensuous languor that was something more and less than sleep. She was sinking into scented billows of insensible bliss when something touched her face. So supersensitive were her drugged senses that the light touch was like a dislocating impact jolting her rudely into full wakefulness. Then it was that she saw not a gargantuan blossom, but a dark-skinned woman standing above her. With the realization came anger and instant action. The woman turned lithely, but before she could run, Valeria was on her feet and had caught her arm. She fought like a wildcat for an instant, and then subsided as she felt herself crushed by the superior strength of her captor. The pirate wrenched the woman around to face her, caught her chin with her free hand, and forced her captive to meet her gaze. 
It was the sullen Yasala, Tassela's maid. What the devil were you doing bending over me? What's that in your hand? The woman made no reply, but sought to cast away the object. Valeria twisted her arm around in front of her, and the thing fell to the floor. A great black exotic blossom on a jade-green stem, large as the woman's head to be sure, but tiny beside the exaggerated vision she had seen. The black lotus, said Valeria between her teeth. The blossom whose scent brings deep sleep. You were trying to drug me. If you hadn't accidentally touched my face with the petals, you'd have— Why did you do it? What's your game? Yasala maintained a sulky silence, and with an oath Valeria whirled her around, forced her to her knees, and twisted her arm up behind her back. Tell me, or I'll tear your arm out of its socket. Yasala squirmed in anguish as her arm was forced excruciatingly up between her shoulder-blades, but a violent shaking of her head was the only answer she made. Slut! Valeria cast her from her to sprawl on the floor. The pirate glared at the prostrate figure with blazing eyes. Fear and the memory of Tassella's burning eyes stirred in her, rousing all her tigerish instincts of self-preservation. These people were decadent. Any sort of perversity might be expected to be encountered among them. But Valeria sensed here something that moved behind the scenes, some secret terror fouler than common degeneracy. Fear and revulsion of this weird city swept her. These people were neither sane nor normal. She began to doubt if they were even human. Madness smoldered in the eyes of them all, all except the cruel cryptic eyes of Tassella, which held secrets and mysteries more abysmal than madness. She lifted her head and listened intently. The halls of Zushatl were as silent as if it were in reality a dead city. The green jewels bathed the chamber in a nightmare glow in which the eyes of the woman on the floor glittered eerily up at her. A thrill of panic throbbed through Valeria, driving the last vestige of mercy from her fierce soul. "'Why did you try to drug me?' she muttered, grasping the woman's black hair and forcing her head back to glare into her sullen, long-lashed eyes. "'Did Tassella send you?' No answer. Valeria cursed venomously and slapped the woman first on one cheek and then the other. The blows resounded through the room, but Yasala made no outcry. "'Why don't you scream?' demanded Valeria savagely. "'Do you fear someone will hear you? Whom do you fear? Tassella? Olmec? Conan?' Yasala made no reply. She crouched, watching her captor with eyes baleful as those of a basilisk. Stubborn silence always fans anger. Valeria turned and tore a handful of cords from a nearby hanging. "'You sulky slut!' she said between her teeth. "'I'm going to strip you stark naked and tie you across that couch and whip you until you tell me what you were doing here and who sent you!' Yasala made no verbal protest, nor did she offer any resistance as Valeria carried out the first part of her threat with a fury that her captive's obstinacy only sharpened. Then, for a space, there was no sound in the chamber except the whistle and crackle of hard-woven silken cords on naked flesh. Yasala could not move her fast-bound hands or feet. Her body writhed and quivered under the chastisement. Her head swayed from side to side in rhythm with the blows. Her teeth were sunk into her lower lip, and a trickle of blood began as the punishment continued. 
but she did not cry out. The pliant cords made no great sound as they encountered the quivering body of the captive. Only a sharp, crackling snap, but each cord left a red streak across Yasala's dark flesh. Valeria inflicted the punishment with all the strength of her war-hardened arm, with all the mercilessness acquired during a life where pain and torment were daily happenings, and with all the cynical ingenuity which only a woman displays towards a woman. Yasala suffered more physically and mentally than she would have suffered under a lash wielded by a man, however strong. It was the application of this feminine cynicism which at last tamed Yasala. A low whimper escaped from her lips, and Valeria paused, arm lifted, and raked back a damp yellow lock. Well, are you going to talk? she demanded. I can keep this up all night if necessary. Mercy, whispered the woman. I will tell. Valeria cut the cords from her wrists and ankles, and pulled her to her feet. Yasala sank down on the couch, half reclining on one bare hip, supporting herself on her arm, and writhing at the contact of her smarting flesh with the couch. She was trembling in every limb. Wine, she begged, dry-lipped, indicating with a quivering hand a gold vessel on an ivory table. Let me drink. I am weak with pain. Then I will tell you. Valeria picked up the vessel, and Yasala rose unsteadily to receive it. She took it, raised it toward her lips, then dashed the contents full into the Aquilonian's face. Valeria reeled backward, shaking and clawing the stinging liquid out of her eyes. Through a smarting mist she saw Yasala dart across the room, fling back a bolt, throw open the copper-bound door, and run down the hall. The pirate was after her instantly, soared out, and murder in her heart. But Yasala had the start, and she ran with the nervous agility of a woman who has just been whipped to the point of hysterical frenzy. She rounded a corner in the corridor, yards ahead of Valeria, and when the pirate turned it she saw only an empty hall, and at the other end a door that gaped blackly. A damp, moldy scent reeked up from it, and Valeria shivered. That must be the door that led to the catacombs. Yasala had taken refuge among the dead. Valeria advanced to the door and looked down a flight of stone steps that vanished quickly into utter blackness. Evidently it was a shaft that led straight to the pits below the city without opening upon any of the lower floors. She shivered slightly at the thought of the thousands of corpses lying in their stone crypts down there, wrapped in their moldering cloths. She had no intention of groping her way down those stone steps. Yasala doubtless knew every turn and twist of the subterranean tunnels. She was turning back, baffled and furious, when a sobbing cry welled up from the blackness. It seemed to come from a great depth, but human words were faintly distinguishable, and the voice was that of a woman. Oh, help, help, in Set's name! Ah! It trailed away, and Valeria thought she caught the echo of a ghostly tittering. Valeria felt her skin crawl. What had happened to Yasala down there in the thick blackness? There was no doubt that it had been she who had cried out, but what peril could have befallen her? Was a Zotalanka lurking down there? Olmec had assured them that the catacombs below Tecutli were walled off from the rest, too securely for their enemies to break through. Besides, that tittering had not sounded like a human being at all. 
Valeria hurried back down the corridor, not stopping to close the door that opened on the stair. Regaining her chamber, she closed the door and shot the bolt behind her. She pulled on her boots and buckled her sword-belt about her. She was determined to make her way to Conan's room and urge him, if he still lived, to join her in an attempt to fight their way out of that city of devils. But even as she reached the door that opened into the corridor, a long-drawn scream of agony rang through the halls, followed by the stamp of running feet and the loud clangor of swords. Chapter 5 Twenty Red Nails Two warriors lounged in the guardroom on the floor known as the Tear of the Eagle. Their attitude was casual, though habitually alert. An attack on the great bronze door from without was always a possibility, but for many years no such assault had been attempted on either side. The strangers are strong allies, said one. Olmec will move against the enemy tomorrow, I believe. He spoke as a soldier in a war might have spoken. In the miniature world of Zushatl, each handful of feudists was an army, and the empty halls between the castles was the country over which they campaigned. The other meditated for a space. Suppose with their aid we destroy Zotalank, he said. What then, Zatmek? Why, returned Zatmek, we will drive red nails for them all. The captives we will burn and flay and quarter. Afterward? pursued the other. After we have slain them all, will it not seem strange to have no foes to fight? All my life I have fought and hated the Zotalankas. With the feud ended, what is left? Zatamek shrugged his shoulders. His thoughts had never gone beyond the destruction of their foes. They could not go beyond that. Suddenly both men stiffened at a noise outside the door. To the door, Zatmek! hissed the last speaker. I shall look through the eye. Zatmek, sword in hand, leaned against the bronze door, straining his ear to hear through the metal. His mate looked into the mirror. He stared convulsively. Men were clustered thickly outside the door, grim, dark-faced men with swords gripped in their teeth and their fingers thrust into their ears. One who wore a feathered headdress had a set of pipes which he set to his lips, and even as the Tecutl started to shout a warning, the pipes began to skirl. The cry died in the guard's throat as the thin, weird piping penetrated the metal door and smote on his ears. Zatmek leaned frozen against the door, as if paralyzed in that position. His face was that of a wooden image, his expression one of horrified listening. The other guard, farther removed from the source of the sound, yet sensed the horror of what was taking place, the grisly threat that lay in that demoniac fifing. He felt the weird strains plucking like unseen fingers at the tissues of his brain, filling him with alien emotions and impulses of madness. But with a soul-tearing effort he broke the spell and shrieked a warning in a voice he did not recognize as his own. But even as he cried out, the music changed to an unbearable shrilling that was like a knife in the eardrums. Zatmek screamed in sudden agony, and all the sanity went out of his face like a flame blown out in a wind. Like a madman, he ripped loose the chain, tore open the door, and rushed out into the hall, sword lifted, before his mate could stop him. 
A dozen blades struck him down, and over his mangled body the Xotalancus surged into the guardroom with a long-drawn, blood-mad yell that sent the unwanted echoes reverberating. His brain reeling from the shock of it all, the remaining guard leaped to meet them with goring spear. The horror of the sorcery he had just witnessed was submerged in the stunning realization that the enemy were in Tecutli. And as his spearhead ripped through a dark-skinned belly, he knew no more, for a swinging sword crushed his skull, even as wild-eyed warriors came pouring in from the chambers behind the guardroom. It was the yelling of men and the clanging of steel that brought Conan bounding from his couch, wide awake and broadsword in hand. In an instant he had reached the door and flung it open and was glaring out into the corridor just as Tecatl rushed up to it, eyes blazing madly. "'The Zotolankus!' he screamed in a voice hardly human. "'They are within the door!' Conan ran down the corridor even as Valeria emerged from her chamber. "'What the devil is it?' she called. "'Tecatl says the Zotolankus are in,' he answered hurriedly. That racket sounds like it. With the Tecutli on their heels, they burst into the throne room and were confronted by a scene beyond the most frantic dream of blood and fury. Twenty men and women, their black hair streaming and the white skulls gleaming on their breasts, were locked in combat with the people of Tecutli. The women on both sides fought as madly as the men, and already the room and the hall beyond were strewn with corpses. Olmec naked but for a breech-clout, was fighting before his throne, and as the adventurers entered, Tessela ran from an inner chamber with a sword in her hand. Zatmek and his mate were dead, so there was none to tell the Tecutli how their foes had found their way into their citadel, nor was there any to say what had prompted that mad attempt. But the losses of the Zotolancus had been greater, their position more desperate than the Tecutli had known. The maiming of their scaly ally, the destruction of the burning skull, and the news gasped by a dying man that mysterious white-skinned allies had joined their enemies, had driven them to the frenzy of desperation, and the wild determination to die dealing death to their ancient foes. The Tecutli recovering from the first stunning shock of the surprise that had swept them back into the throne room and littered the floor with their corpses, fought back with an equally desperate fury, while the door guards from the lower floors came racing to hurl themselves into the fray. It was a death fight of rabid wolves, blind, panting, and merciless. Back and forth it surged from door to dais, blades wickering and striking into flesh blood spurting, feet stamping the crimson floor where redder pools were forming. Ivory tables crashed over, seats were splintered, velvet hangings torn down were stained red. It was the bloody climax of a bloody half-century, and every man there sensed it. But the conclusion was inevitable. The Tecoltli outnumbered the invaders almost two to one, and they were heartened by that fact and by the entrance into the melee of their light-skinned allies. These crashed into the fray with the devastating effect of a hurricane plowing through a grove of saplings. In sheer strength, no three Tlazitlans were a match for Conan, and in spite of his weight he was quicker on his feet than any of them. He moved through the whirling, eddying mass with the surety and destructiveness of a gray wolf amidst a pack of alley curs, and he strode over a wake of crumpled figures. 
Valeria fought beside him, her lips smiling and her eyes blazing. She was stronger than the average man and far quicker and more ferocious. Her sword was like a living thing in her hand. Where Conan beat down opposition by the sheer weight and power of his blows, breaking spears, splitting skulls, and cleaving bosoms to the breastbone, Valeria brought into action a finesse of swordplay that dazzled and bewildered her antagonists before it slew them. Again and again a warrior heaving high, his heavy blade found her point in his jugular before he could strike. Conan, towering above the field, strode through the welter, smiting right and left, but Valeria moved like an elusive phantom, constantly shifting and thrusting and slashing as she shifted. Swords missed her again and again as the wielders flailed the empty air and died with her point in their hearts or throats, and her mocking laughter in their ears. Neither sex nor condition was considered by the maddened combatants. The five women of the Zotalancus were down with their throats cut before Conan and Valeria entered the fray, and when a man or woman went down under the stamping feet, there was always a knife ready for the helpless throat or a sandaled foot eager to crush the prostrate skull. From wall to wall, from door to door, rolled the waves of combat, spilling over into adjoining chambers and presently only Tecutli and their white-skinned allies stood upright in the great throne room. The survivors stared bleakly and blankly at each other, like survivors after Judgment Day or the destruction of the world. On legs wide-braced, hands gripping notched and dripping swords, blood trickling down their arms, they stared at one another across the mangled corpses of friends and foes. They had no breath left to shout, but a bestial mad howling rose from their lips. It was not a human cry of triumph. It was the howling of a rabid wolf-pack stalking among the bodies of its victims. Conan caught Valeria's arm and turned her about. "'You've got a stab in the calf of your leg,' he growled. She glanced down, for the first time aware of a stinging in the muscles of her leg. Some dying man on the floor had fleshed his dagger with his last effort. "'You look like a butcher yourself,' she laughed. He shook a red shower from his hands. "'Not mine. Oh, a scratch here and there, nothing to bother about, but that calf ought to be bandaged.' Olmec came through the litter, looking like a ghoul, with his naked, massive shoulders splashed with blood and his black beard dabbed in crimson. His eyes were red, like the reflection of flame on black water. "'We have won!' he croaked dazedly. "'The feud is ended. The dogs of Zoltalank lie dead. Oh, for a captive to flay alive! Yet it is good to look upon their dead faces. Twenty dead dogs. Twenty red nails for the black column.' "'You'd best see to your wounded,' grunted Conan, turning away from him. "'Here, girl, let me see that leg.' Wait a minute. She shook him off impatiently. The fire of fighting still burned brightly in her soul. How do we know these are all of them? These might have come on a raid of their own. They would not split the clan on a foray like this, said Olmec, shaking his head and regaining some of his ordinary intelligence. Without his purple robe, the man seemed less like a prince than some repellent beast of prey. I will stake my head upon it that we have slain them all, 
There were less of them than I dreamed, and they must have been desperate. But how came they in Tecutli? Tessela came forward, wiping her sword on her naked thigh and holding in her other hand an object she had taken from the body of the feathered leader of the Xotalancas. The pipes of madness, she said. A warrior tells me that Zatmec opened the door to the Xotalancas and was cut down as they stormed into the guardroom. This warrior came to the guardroom from the inner hall just in time to see it happen and to hear the last of a weird strain of music which froze his very soul. Tolkemec used to talk of these pipes, which the Zushotlans swore were hidden somewhere in the catacombs, with the bones of the ancient wizard who used them in his lifetime. Somehow the dogs of Zotalank found them and learned their secret. Somebody ought to go to Zotalank and see if any remain alive said Conan. I'll go if somebody will guide me. Olmec glanced at the remnants of his people. There were only twenty left alive, and of these several lay groaning on the floor. Tassela was the only one of the Tecutli who had escaped without a wound. The princess was untouched, though she had fought as savagely as any. Who will go with Conan to Zotalank? asked Olmec. Tecatl limped forward. The wound in his thigh had started bleeding afresh, and he had another gash across his ribs. I will go. No, you won't, vetoed Conan. And you're not going either, Valeria. In a little while that leg will be getting stiff. I will go, volunteered a warrior who was knotting a bandage about a slashed forearm. Very well, Yanith. Go with the Sumerian, and you too, Topal. Olmec indicated another man whose injuries were slight. But first aid us to lift the badly wounded on these couches where we may bandage their hurts. This was done quickly. As they stooped to pick up a woman who had been stunned by a war club, Olmec's beard brushed Topal's ear. Conan thought the prince muttered something to the warrior, but he could not be sure. A few moments later he was leading his companions down the hall. Conan glanced back as he went out the door at the shambles where the dead lay on the smoldering floor. Blood-stained, dark limbs knotted in attitudes of fierce muscular effort. Dark faces frozen in masks of hate, glassy eyes staring up at the green fire-jewels which bathed the ghastly scene in a dusky emerald witchlight. Among the dead the living moved aimlessly, like people moving in a trance. Conan heard Olmec call a woman and direct her to bandage Valeria's leg. The pirate followed the woman into an adjoining chamber, already beginning to limp slightly. Warily the two Tecotli led Conan along the hall beyond the bronze door and through chamber after chamber shimmering in the green fire. They saw no one, heard no sound. After they crossed the great hall which bisected the city from north to south, their caution was increased by the realization of their nearness to enemy territory. But chambers and halls lay empty to their wary gaze, and they came at last along a broad, dim hallway and halted before a bronze door, similar to the eagle door of Tecutli. Gingerly they tried it, and it opened silently under their fingers. Awed, they stared into the green-lit chambers beyond. For fifty years no Tecutli had entered those halls save as a prisoner going to a hideous doom. To go to Zoltalank had been the ultimate horror that could befall a man of the western castle. 
The terror of it had stalked through their dreams since earliest childhood. To Yanath and Topal that bronze door was like the portal of hell. They cringed back, unreasoning horror in their eyes, and Conan pushed past them and strode into Zoltalank. Timidly they followed him. As each man set foot over the threshold, he stared and glared wildly about him, but only their quick, hurried breathing disturbed the silence. They had come into a square guardroom, like that behind the eagle door of Tecutli, and similarly a hall ran away from it to a broad chamber that was a counterpart of Olmec's throne room. Conan glanced down the hall with its rugs and divans and hangings and stood listening intently. He heard no noise, and the rooms had an empty feel. He did not believe there were any Zotolankas left alive in Zushatl. Come on, he muttered, and started down the hall. He had not gone far when he was aware that only Yanith was following him. He wheeled back to see Topal standing in an attitude of horror, one arm out as if to fend off some threatening peril his distended eyes fixed with hypnotic intensity on something protruding from behind a divan. What the devil? Then Conan saw what Topol was staring at, and he felt a faint twitching of the skin between his giant shoulders. A monstrous head protruded from behind the divan, a reptilian head, broad as the head of a crocodile, with down-curving fangs that projected over the lower jaw. But there was an unnatural limpness about the thing, and the hideous eyes were glazed. Conan peered behind the couch. It was a great serpent which lay there, limp in death, but such a serpent as he had never seen in his wanderings. The reek and chill of the deep black earth were about it, and its color was an indeterminable hue which changed with each new angle from which he surveyed it. A great wound in the neck showed what had caused its death. "'It is the crawler,' whispered Yanith. "'It is the thing I slashed on the stair,' grunted Conan. After it trailed us to the eagle door, it dragged itself here to die. How could the Zotolankas control such a brute?' The Tecutli shivered and shook their heads. "'They brought it up from the black tunnels below the catacombs.' They discovered secrets unknown to Tecutli. Well, it's dead, and if they had any more of them, they'd have brought them along when they came to Tecutli. Come on. They crowded close at his heels as he strode down the hall and thrust on the silverwork door at the other end. If we don't find anybody on this floor, he said, we'll descend into the lower floors. We'll explore Zotolank from the roof to the catacombs. If Zotolank is like Tecutli, all the rooms and halls in this tier will be lighted. What the devil? They had come into the broad throne chamber, so similar to that one in Tecutli. There were the same jade dais and ivory seat, the same divans, rugs, and hangings on the walls. No black red-scarred column stood behind the throne dais, but evidences of the grim feud were not lacking. Ranged along the wall behind the dais were rows of glass-covered shelves, and on those shelves hundreds of human heads, perfectly preserved, staring at the startled watchers with emotionless eyes as they had stared for only the gods knew how many months and years. Topal muttered a curse, but Yanith stood silent, the mad light growing in his wide eyes. 
Conan frowned, knowing that Tlazitlan sanity was hung on a hair trigger. Suddenly Yanith pointed to the ghastly relics with a twitching finger. "'There is my brother's head,' he murmured. "'And there is my father's younger brother. And there, beyond them, is my sister's eldest son.' Suddenly he began to weep, dry-eyed, with harsh, loud sobs that shook his frame. He did not take his eyes from the heads. His sobs grew shriller, changed to frightful, high-pitched laughter, and that in turn became an unbearable screaming. Yanith was stark mad. Conan laid a hand on his shoulder, and as if the touch had released all the frenzy in his soul, Yanith screamed and whirled, striking at the Cimmerian with his sword. Conan parried the blow, and Topal tried to catch Yanith's arm, but the madman avoided him, and with froth flying from his lips he drove his sword deep into Topal's body. Topal sank down with a groan, and Yanith whirled for an instant like a crazy dervish. Then he ran at the shelves and began hacking at the glass with his sword, screeching blasphemously. Conan sprang at him from behind, trying to catch him unaware and disarm him, but the madman wheeled and lunged at him, screaming like a lost soul. Realizing that the warrior was hopelessly insane, the Cimmerian sidestepped, and as the manic went past, he swung a cut that severed the shoulder-bone in breast, and dropped the man dead beside his dying victim. Conan bent over Topal, seeing that the man was at his last gasp. It was useless to seek to staunch the blood gushing from the horrible wound. "'You're done for, Topal,' grunted Conan. "'Any word you want to send to your people?' "'Bend closer,' gasped Topal, and Conan complied, and an instant later caught the man's wrist as Topal struck at his breast with a dagger. "'Grom!' swore Conan. "'Are you mad, too?' "'Olmec ordered it gasped the dying man. I know not why. As we lifted the wounded upon the couches, he whispered to me, bidding me to slay you as we returned to Tecutli. And with the name of his clan on his lips, Topal died. Conan scowled down at him in puzzlement. This whole affair had an aspect of lunacy. Was Olmec mad, too? Were all the Tecutli madder than he had realized? With a shrug of his shoulders, he strode down the hall and out of the bronze door, leaving the dead Tecutli lying before the staring dead eyes of their kinsmen's heads. Conan needed no guide back through the labyrinth they had traversed. His primitive instinct of direction led him unerringly along the route they had come. He traversed it as warily as he had before, his sword in his hand and his eyes fiercely searching each shadowed nook and corner for it was his former allies he feared now, not the ghosts of the slain Zotolankas. He had crossed the great hall and entered the chambers beyond when he heard something moving ahead of him, something which gasped and panted and moved with a strange floundering, scrambling noise. A moment later Conan saw a man crawling over the flaming floor toward him, a man whose progress left a broad, bloody smear on the smoldering surface. It was Tecotl, and his eyes were already glazing from a deep gash in his breast. Blood gushed steadily between the fingers of his clutching hand. With the other he crawled and hitched himself along. Conan, he cried chokingly. Conan, Olmec has taken the yellow-haired woman. So that's why he told Topal to kill me, murmured Conan, 
dropping to his knee beside the man who his experienced eye told him was dying. Olmec isn't so mad as I thought. Tecatl's groping fingers plucked at Conan's arm. In the cold, loveless, and altogether hideous life of the Tecutli, his admiration and affection for the invaders from the outer world formed a warm human oasis, constituted a tie that connected him with a more natural humanity that was totally lacking in his fellows, whose only emotions were hate, lust, and the urge of sadistic cruelty. I sought to oppose him, gurgled Tecatl, blood bubbling frothily to his lips. But he struck me down. He thought he had slain me, but I crawled away. Ah, uh, Set, how far I have crawled in my own blood. Beware, Conan. Olmec may have set an ambush for your return. Slay Olmec. He is a beast. Take Valeria and flee. Fear not to traverse the forest. Olmec and Tessela lied about the dragons. They slew each other years ago, all save the strongest. For a dozen years there has been only one dragon. If you have slain him, there is naught in the forest to harm you. He was the god Olmec worshipped, and Olmec fed human sacrifices to him, the very old and the very young, bound and hurled from the wall. Hasten, Olmec has taken Valeria to the chamber of the... His head slumped down, and he was dead before it came to rest on the floor. Conan sprang up, his eyes like live coals. So that was Olmec's game. Having first used the strangers to destroy his foes, he should have known that something of the sort would be going on in that black-bearded degenerate's mind. The Cimmerian started toward Tecoltli, with reckless speed. Rapidly he reckoned the numbers of his former allies. Only twenty-one, counting Olmec, had survived that fiendish battle in the throne room. Three had died since, which left seventeen enemies with which to reckon. In his rage Conan felt capable of accounting for the whole clan single-handed. But the innate craft of the wilderness rose to guide his berserk rage. He remembered Tecatl's warning of an ambush. It was quite probable that the prince would make such provisions on the chance that Topal might have failed to carry out his order. Olmec would be expecting him to return by the same route he had followed in going to Zotalank. Conan glanced up at the skylight under which he was passing and caught the blurred glimmer of stars. They had not yet begun to pale for dawn. The events of the night had been crowded into a comparatively short space of time. He turned aside from his direct course and descended a winding staircase to the floor below. He did not know where the door was to be found that let into the castle on that level, but he knew he could find it. How he was to force the locks he did not know. He believed that the doors of Tecutli would all be locked and bolted, if for no other reason than the habits of half a century. But there was nothing else but to attempt it. Sword in hand, he hurried noiselessly on through a maze of green-lit or shadowy rooms and halls. He knew he must be near Tecutli when a sound brought him up short. He recognized it for what it was, a human being trying to cry out through a stifling gag. It came from somewhere ahead of him, and to the left, in those deathly still chambers, a small sound carried a long way. Conan turned aside and went seeking after the sound, which continued to be repeated. Presently he was glaring through a doorway upon a weird scene. 
In the room into which he was looking a low, rack-like frame of iron lay on the floor, and a giant figure was bound prostrate upon it. His head rested on a bed of iron spikes, which were already crimson-pointed with blood where they had pierced his scalp. A peculiar harness-like contrivance was fastened about his head, though in such a manner that the leather band did not protect his scalp from the spikes. This harness was connected by a slender chain to the mechanism that upheld a huge iron ball which was suspended above the captive's hairy breast. As long as the man could force himself to remain motionless, the iron ball hung in its place. But when the pain of the iron points caused him to lift his head, the ball lurched downward a few inches. Presently his aching neck muscles would no longer support his head in its unnatural position, and it would fall back on the spikes again. It was obvious that eventually the ball would crush him to pulp, slowly and inexorably. The victim was gagged, and above the gag his great black ox-eyes rolled wildly toward the man in the doorway, who stood in silent amazement. The man on the rack was Olmec, Prince of Tecutli. CHAPTER Six: THE EYES OF Tascella. Why did you bring me into this chamber to bandage my legs? demanded Valeria. Couldn't you have done it just as well in the throne room? She sat on a couch with her wounded leg extended upon it, and the Tecutli woman had just bound it with silk bandages. Valeria's red-stained sword lay on the couch beside her. She frowned as she spoke. The woman had done her task silently and efficiently, but Valeria liked neither the lingering, caressing touch of her slim fingers nor the expression in her eyes. They have taken the rest of the wounded into the other chambers, answered the woman in the soft speech of the Tecutli women, which somehow did not suggest either softness or gentleness in the speakers. A little while before, Valeria had seen this same woman stab a Zotalanka woman through the breast and stamp the eyeballs out of a wounded Zotalanka man. They will be carrying the corpses of the dead down into the catacombs, she added, lest the ghosts escape into the chambers and dwell there. Do you believe in ghosts? asked Valeria. I know the ghost of Tolkemec dwells in the catacombs, she answered with a shiver. Once I saw it as I crouched in a crypt among the bones of a dead queen. It passed by in the form of an ancient man with flowing white beard and locks and luminous eyes that blazed in the darkness. It was Tolkemec. I saw him living when I was a child, and he was being tortured. Her voice sank to a fearful whisper. Olmec laughs, but I know Tolkemec's ghost dwells in the catacombs. They say it is rats which gnaw the flesh from the bones of the newly dead, but... Ghosts eat flesh? Who knows, but that— She glanced up quickly as a shadow fell across the couch. Valeria looked up to see Olmec gazing down at her. The prince had cleansed his hands, torso, and beard of the blood that had splashed them, but he had not donned his robe, and his great dark-skinned hairless body and limbs renewed the impression of strength, bestial in its nature. His deep black eyes burned with a more elemental light, and there was the suggestion of a twitching in the fingers that tugged at his thick blue-black beard. He stared fixedly at the woman, and she rose and glided from the chamber. 
As she passed through the door, she cast a look over her shoulder at Valeria, a glance full of cynical derision and obscene mockery. She has done a clumsy job, criticized the prince, coming to the divan and bending over the bandage. Let me see. With a quickness amazing in one of his bulk, he snatched her sword and threw it across the chamber. His next move was to catch her in his giant arms. Quick and unexpected as the move was, she almost matched it, for even as he grabbed her, her dirk was in her hand and she stabbed murderously at his throat. More by luck than skill, he caught her wrist and then began a savage wrestling match. She fought him with fists, feet, knees, teeth, and nails, with all the strength of her magnificent body and all the knowledge of hand-to-hand -hand fighting she had acquired in her years of roving and fighting on sea and land. It availed her nothing against his brute strength. She lost her dirk in the first moment of contact and thereafter found herself powerless to inflict any appreciable pain on her giant attacker. The blaze in his weird black eyes did not alter, and their expression filled her with fury, fanned by the sardonic smile that seemed carved upon his bearded lips. Those eyes and that smile contained all the cruel cynicism that seethes below the surface of a sophisticated and degenerate race, and for the first time in her life Valeria experienced fear of a man. It was like struggling against some huge elemental force. His iron arms thwarted her efforts with an ease that sent panic racing through her limbs. He seemed impervious to any pain she could inflict. Only once, when she sank her white teeth savagely into his wrist so that the blood started, did he react, and that was to buffet her brutally upon the side of the head with his opened hands so that stars flashed before her eyes and her head rolled on her shoulders. Her shirt had been torn open in the struggle, and with cynical cruelty he rasped his thick beard across her bare breasts, bringing the blood to suffuse the fair skin and fetching a cry of pain and outraged fury from her. Her convulsive resistance was useless. She was crushed down on a couch, disarmed and panting, her eyes blazing up at him like the eyes of a trapped tigress. A moment later he was hurrying from the chamber, carrying her in his arms. She made no resistance, but the smoldering of her eyes showed that she was unconquered in spirit at least. She had not cried out. She knew that Conan was not within call, and it did not occur to her that any in Tecutli would oppose their prince. But she noticed that Olmec went stealthily, with his head on one side as if listening for sounds of pursuit, and he did not return to the throne chamber. He carried her through a door that stood opposite that through which he had entered, crossed another room, and began stealing down a hall. As she became convinced that he feared some opposition to the abduction, she threw back her head and screamed at the top of her lusty voice. She was rewarded by a slap that half stunned her, and Olmec quickened his pace to a shambling run. But her cry had been echoed, and twisting her head about Valeria through the tears and stars that partly blinded her saw Tecatl limping after them. Olmec turned with a snarl shifting the woman to an uncomfortable and certainly undignified position under one arm, where he held her writhing and kicking vainly, like a child. Olmec, protested Tecatl, you cannot be such a dog as to do this thing. She is Conan's woman. She helped us slay the Zotolancus, and— Without a word, 
Olmec balled his free hand into a huge fist and stretched the wounded warrior senseless at his feet. Stooping and hindered not at all by the struggles and imprecations of his captive, he drew Tecatl's sword from its sheath and stabbed the warrior in the breast. Then, casting aside the weapon, he fled along the corridor. He did not see a woman's dark face peer cautiously after him from behind a hanging. It vanished, and presently Tecatl groaned and stirred, rose dazedly, and staggered drunkenly away, calling Conan's name. Olmec hurried on down the corridor and descended a winding ivory staircase. He crossed several corridors and halted at last in a broad chamber whose doors were veiled with heavy tapestries, with one exception, a heavy bronze door, similar to the door of the eagle on the upper floor. He was moved to rumble, pointing to it. That is one of the outer doors of Tecutli. For the first time in fifty years it is unguarded. We need not guard it now, for Zotalank is no more. Thanks to Conan and me, you bloody rogue, sneered Valeria, trembling with fury and the shame of physical coercion. You treacherous dog! Conan will cut your throat for this! Olmec did not bother to voice his belief that Conan's own gullet had already been severed according to his whispered command. He was too utterly cynical to be at all interested in her thoughts or opinions. His flame-lit eyes devoured her, dwelling burningly on the generous expanses of clear white flesh exposed where her shirt and breeches had been torn in the struggle. Forget Conan, he said thickly. Olmec is lord of Zushatl. Zoltalank is no more. There will be no more fighting. We shall spend our lives in drinking and love-making. First, let us drink. He seated himself on an ivory table and pulled her down on his knees like a dark-skinned satyr, with a white nymph in his arms. Ignoring her unnymph-like profanity, he held her helpless with one great arm about her waist while the other reached across the table and secured a vessel of wine. Drink, he commanded, forcing it to her lips as she writhed her head away. The liquor slopped over, stinging her lips, splashing down on her naked breasts. Your guest does not like your wine, Olmec, spoke a cool, sardonic voice. Olmec stiffened. Fear grew in his flaming eyes. Slowly he swung his great head about and stared at Tassella, who posed negligently in the curtained doorway, one hand on her smooth hip. Valeria twisted herself about in his iron grip, and when she met the burning eyes of Tassella, a chill tingled along her supple spine. New experiences were flooding Valeria's proud soul that night. Recently she had learned to fear a man. Now she knew what it was to fear a woman. Olmec sat motionless, a gray pallor growing under his swarthy skin. Tassella brought her other hand from behind her and displayed a small gold vessel. I feared she would not like your wine, Olmec, purred the princess. So I brought some of mine. Some I brought with me long ago from the shores of Lake Zuad. Do you understand, Olmec? Beads of sweat stood out suddenly on Olmec's brow. His muscles relaxed, and Valeria broke away and put the table between them. But though reason told her to dart from the room, some fascination she could not understand held her rigid, watching the scene. Tassella came toward the seated prince with a swaying, undulating walk that was mockery in itself. Her voice was soft, 
slurringly caressing, but her eyes gleamed. Her slim fingers stroked his beard lightly. You are selfish, Olmec, she crooned, smiling. You would keep our handsome guest to yourself, though you knew I wished to entertain her. You are much at fault, Olmec. The mask dropped for an instant. Her eyes flashed, her face was contorted, and with an appalling show of strength her hand locked convulsively in his beard and tore out a great handful. This evidence of unnatural strength was no more terrifying than the momentary barring of the hellish fury that raged under her bland exterior. Olmec lurched up with a roar and stood swaying like a bear, his mighty hands clenching and unclenching. Slut! His booming voice filled the room. Witch! She-devil! Tecutli should have slain you fifty years ago! Be gone! I have endured too much from you. This white-skinned wench is mine. Get hence before I slay you!" The princess laughed and dashed the blood-stained strands into his face. Her laughter was less merciful than the ring of flint on steel. Once you spoke otherwise, Olmec, she taunted. Once in your youth you spoke words of love. I, you were my lover once, years ago, and because you loved me you slept in my arms beneath the enchanted lotus, and thereby put into my hands the chains that enslaved you. You know you cannot withstand me. You know I have but to gaze into your eyes with the mystic power a priest of Stygia taught me long ago, and you are powerless. You remember the night beneath the black lotus that waved above us? stirred by no worldly breeze. You sent again the unearthly perfumes that stole and rose like a cloud about you to enslave you. You cannot fight against me. You are my slave as you were that night, as you shall be so long as you shall live, Olmec of Zuchatl. Her voice had sunk to a murmur like the rippling of a stream running through starlit darkness. She leaned close to the prince and spread her long, tapering fingers upon his giant breast. His eyes glazed. His great hands fell limply to his sides. With a smile of cruel malice, Tassella lifted the vessel and placed it to his lips. Drink! Mechanically the prince obeyed, and instantly the glaze passed from his eyes and they were flooded with fury, comprehension, and an awful fear. His mouth gaped, but no sound issued. For an instant he reeled on his buckling knees and then fell in a sodden heap on the floor. His fall jolted Valeria out of her paralysis. She turned and sprang toward the door, but with a movement that would have shamed a leaping panther, Tessella was before her. Valeria struck at her with her clenched fist and all the power of her supple body behind the blow. It would have stretched a man senseless on the floor, but with a lithe twist of her torso Tassella avoided the blow and caught the pirate's wrist. The next instant Valeria's left hand was imprisoned, and holding her wrists together with one hand, Tassella calmly bound them with a cord she drew from her girdle. Valeria thought she had tasted the ultimate in humiliation already that night, but her shame at being manhandled by Olmec was nothing to the sensations that now shook her supple frame. Valeria had always been inclined to despise the other members of her sex, and it was overwhelming to encounter another woman who could handle her like a child. She scarcely resisted at all when Tassella forced her into a chair and, drawing her bound wrists down between her knees, fastened them to the chair. 
Casually stepping over Olmec, Tassela walked to the bronze door and shot the bolt and threw it open, revealing a hallway without. Opening upon this hall, she remarked, speaking to her feminine captive for the first time, there is a chamber which in old times was used as a torture room. When we retired to Tecutli, we brought most of the apparatus with us, but there was one piece too heavy to move. It is still in working order. I think it will be quite convenient now." An understanding flame of terror rose in Olmec's eyes. Tessela strode back to him, bent, and gripped him by the hair. "'He is only paralyzed temporarily,' she remarked conversationally. "'He can hear, think, and feel. Aye, he can feel very well indeed.' With which sinister observation she started toward the door, dragging the giant bulk with an ease that made the pirate's eyes dilate. She passed into the hall and moved down it without hesitation, presently disappearing with her captive into a chamber that opened into it, and whence shortly thereafter issued the clank of iron. Valeria swore softly and tugged vainly with her legs braced against the chair. The cords that confined her were apparently unbreakable. Tessella presently returned alone. Behind her a muffled groaning issued from the chamber. She closed the door, but did not bolt it. Tessella was beyond the grip of habit, as she was beyond the touch of other human instincts and emotions. Valeria sat dumbly, watching the woman in whose slim hands the pirate realized her destiny now rested. Tessella grasped her yellow locks and forced back her head, looking impersonally down into her face. But the glitter in the dark eyes was not impersonal. "'I have chosen you for a great honor,' she said. "'You shall restore the youth of Tassella. Oh, you stare at that. My appearance is that of youth, but through my veins creeps the sluggish chill of approaching age, as I have felt it a thousand times before.' I am old, so old I do not remember my childhood. But I was a girl once, and a priest of Stygia loved me and gave me the secret of immortality and youth everlasting. He died then, some say by poison. But I dwelt in my palace by the shores of Lake Zuad, and the passing years touched me not. So at last a king of Stygia desired me, and my people rebelled and brought me to this land. Olmec called me a princess. I, I am not of royal blood. I am greater than a princess. I am Tassela, whose youth, your own glorious youth, shall restore." Valeria's tongue clove to the roof of her mouth. She sensed here a mystery darker than the degeneracy she had anticipated. The taller woman unbound the Aquilonian's wrists and pulled her to her feet. It was not fear of the dominant strength that lurked in the princess's limbs that made Valeria a helpless, quivering captive in her hands. It was the burning, hypnotic, terrible eyes of Tassella. Chapter 7 He Comes from the Dark Well, I'm a Cushite. Conan glared down at the man on the iron rack. What the devil are you doing on that thing? Incoherent sounds issued from behind the gag, and Conan bent and tore it away, evoking a bellow of fear from the captive, for his action caused the iron ball to lurch down until it nearly touched the broad breast. 
be careful for Seth's sake, begged Olmec. What for? demanded Conan. Do you think I care what happens to you? I only wish I had time to stay here and watch that chunk of iron grind your guts out. But I'm in a hurry. Where's Valeria? Loose me, urged Olmec. I will tell you all. Tell me first. Never. The prince's heavy jaws set stubbornly. All right. Conan seated himself on a nearby bench. I'll find her myself after you've been reduced to a jelly. I believe I can speed up that process by twisting my sword point around in your ear, he added, extending the weapon experimentally. Wait! Words came in a rush from the captive's ashy lips. Tassella took her from me. I've never been anything but a puppet in Tassella's hands. Tassella? snorted Conan and spat. Why, the filthy— No, no, panted Olmec. It's worse than you think. Tassella is old, centuries old. She renews her life and her youth by the sacrifice of beautiful young women. That's one thing that has reduced the clan to its present state. She will draw the essence of Valeria's life into her own body and bloom with fresh vigor and beauty. Are the doors locked? asked Conan, thumbing his sword edge. Aye, but I know a way to get into Tecutli. Only Tessela and I know, and she thinks me helpless and you slain. Free me, and I swear I will help you to rescue Valeria. Without my help you cannot win in Tecutli. For even if you tortured me into revealing the secret, you couldn't work it. Let me go, and we will steal on Tessela and kill her before she can work magic, before she can fix her eyes on us. A knife thrown from behind will do the work. I should have killed her thus long ago, but I feared that without her to aid us the Zotalankis would overcome us. She needed my help, too. That's the only reason she let me live this long. Now neither needs the other and one must die. I swear that when my people have slain the witch, you and Valeria shall go free without harm. My people will obey me when Tassella is dead." Conan stooped and cut the ropes that held the prince, and Olmec slid cautiously from under the great ball and rose, shaking his head like a bull and muttering imprecations as he fingered his lacerated scalp. Standing shoulder to shoulder, the two men presented a formidable picture of primitive power. Olmec was as tall as Conan and heavier, but there was something repellent about the Tlazitland, something abysmal and monstrous that contrasted unfavorably with the clean-cut, compact hardness of the Cimmerian. Conan had discarded the remnants of his tattered, blood-soaked shirt and stood with his remarkable muscular development impressively revealed. His great shoulders were as broad as those of Olmec and more cleanly outlined and his huge breast arched with a more impressive sweep to a hard waist that lacked the paunchy thickness of Olmec's midsection. He might have been an image of primal strength cut out of bronze. Olmec was darker, but not from the burning of the sun. If Conan was a figure out of the dawn of time, Olmec was a shambling, somber shape from the darkness of time's pre-dawn. Lead on, demanded Conan and keep ahead of me. I don't trust you any farther than I can throw a bull by the tail." Olmec turned and stalked on ahead of him, one hand twitching slightly as it plucked at his matted beard. 
Olmec did not lead Conan back to the bronze door, which the prince naturally supposed Tascela had locked, but to a certain chamber on the border of Tecutli. This secret has been guarded for half a century, he said. Not even our own clan knew of it, and the Zotalancus never learned. Tecutli himself built this secret entrance, afterward slaying the slaves who did the work, for he feared that he might find himself locked out of his own kingdom some day because of the spite of Tascela, whose passion for him soon changed to hate. But she discovered the secret and barred the hidden door against him one day as he fled back from an unsuccessful raid, and the Zotalancus took him and flayed him. But once, spying upon her, I saw her enter Tecutli by this route, and so learned the secret. He pressed upon a gold ornament in the wall, and a panel swung inward, disclosing an ivory stair leading upward. This stair is built within the wall, said Olmec. It leads up to a tower upon the roof, and thence other stairs wind down to various chambers. Hasten! After you, comrade retorted Conan satirically, swaying his broadsword as he spoke. And Olmec shrugged his shoulders and stepped onto the staircase. Conan instantly followed him, and the door shut behind them. Far above, a cluster of fire-jewels made the staircase a well of dusky dragon-light. They mounted until Conan estimated that they were above the level of the fourth floor and then came out into a cylindrical tower, in the domed roof of which was set the bunch of fire-jewels that lighted the stair. Through gold-barred windows set with unbreakable crystal panes, the first windows he had seen in Zushatl, Conan got a glimpse of high ridges, domes, and more towers looming darkly against the stars. He was looking across the roofs of Zushatl. Olmec did not look through the windows. He hurried down one of the several stairs that wound down from the tower, and when they had descended a few feet, this stair changed into a narrow corridor that wound tortuously on for some distance. It ceased at a steep flight of steps leading downward. There Olmec paused. Up from below, muffled but unmistakable, welled a woman's scream, edged with fright, fury, and shame, and Conan recognized Valeria's voice. In the swift rage roused by that cry, and the amazement of wondering what pearl could wring such a reek from Valeria's reckless lips, Conan forgot Olmec. He pushed past the prince and started down the stair. Awakening instinct brought him about again, just as Olmec struck with his great mallet-like fist. The blow, fierce and silent, was aimed at the base of Conan's brain, but the Cimmerian wheeled in time to receive the buffet on the side of his neck instead. The impact would have snapped the vertebrae of a lesser man. As it was, Conan swayed backward, but even as he reeled he dropped his sword, useless at such close quarters, and grasped Olmec's extended arm, dragging the prince with him as he fell. Headlong they went down the steps together in a revolving whirl of limbs and heads and bodies, and as they went, Conan's iron fingers found and locked in Olmec's bull-throat. The barbarian's neck and shoulder felt numb from the sledge-like impact of Olmec's huge fist, which had carried all the strength of the massive forearm, thick triceps, and great shoulder. But this did not affect his ferocity to any appreciable extent. 
Like a bulldog he hung on, grimly shaken and battered and beaten against the steps as they rolled, until at last they struck an ivory panel door at the bottom with such an impact that they splintered it down its full length and crashed through its ruins. But Olmec was already dead, for those iron fingers had crushed out his life and broken his neck as they fell. Conan rose, shaking the splinters from his great shoulders, blinking blood and dust out of his eyes. He was in the great throne room. There were fifteen people in that room beside himself. The first person he saw was Valeria. A curious black altar stood before the throne dais. Ranged about it, seven black candles in golden candlesticks sent up oozing spirals of thick green smoke, disturbingly scented. These spirals united in a cloud near the ceiling, forming a smoky arch above the altar. On that altar lay Valeria, stark naked, her white flesh gleaming in shocking contrast to the glistening ebon stone. She was not bound. She lay at full length, her arms stretched out above her head to their fullest extent. At the head of the altar knelt a young man holding her wrists firmly. A young woman knelt at the other end of the altar, grasping her ankles. Between them she could neither rise nor move. Eleven men and women of Tecutli knelt dumbly in a semicircle, watching the scene with hot, lustful eyes. On the ivory throne seat Tassella lolled. Bronze bowls of incense rolled their spirals about her. The wisps of smoke curled about her naked limbs like caressing fingers. She could not sit still. She squirmed and shifted about with sensuous abandon, as if finding pleasure in the contact of the smooth ivory with her sleek flesh. The crash of the door as it broke beneath the impact of the hurtling bodies caused no change in the scene. The kneeling men and women merely glanced incuriously at the corpse of their prince and at the man who rose from the ruins of the door, then swung their eyes greedily back to the writhing white shape on the black altar. Tassella looked insolently at him, and sprawled back on her seat, laughing mockingly. "'Slut!' Conan saw red. His hands clenched into iron hammers as he started for her. With his first step something clanged loudly, and steel bit savagely into his leg. He stumbled and almost fell, checked in his headlong stride. The jaws of an iron trap had closed on his leg, with teeth that sank deep and held. Only the ridged muscles of his calf saved the bone from being splintered. The accursed thing had sprung out of the smoldering floor without warning. He saw the slots now in the floor where the jaws had lain perfectly camouflaged. "'Fool!' laughed Tessella. "'Did you think I would not guard against your possible return? Every door in this chamber is guarded by such traps.' Stand there and watch now while I fulfill the destiny of your handsome friend. Then I will decide your own." Conan's hand instinctively sought his belt, only to encounter an empty scabbard. His sword was on the stair behind him. His poniard was lying back in the forest where the dragon had torn it from his jaw. The steel teeth in his leg were like burning coals, but the pain was not as savage as the fury that seethed in his soul. He was trapped like a wolf. If he had had his sword, he would have hewn off his leg and crawled across the floor to slay Tessella. Valeria's eyes rolled toward him with mute appeal, and his own helplessness sent red waves of madness surging through his brain. 
Dropping on the knee of his free leg, he strove to get his fingers between the jaws of the trap to tear them apart by sheer strength. Blood started from beneath his fingernails, but the jaws fitted close about his leg in a circle whose segments joined perfectly, contracted until there was no space between his mangled flesh and the fanged iron. The sight of Valeria's naked body added flame to the fire of his rage. Tessella ignored him. Rising languidly from her seat, she swept the ranks of her subjects with a searching glance and asked, Where are Zamek, Slanith, and Tachik? They did not return from the catacombs, princess, answered a man. Like the rest of us, they bore the bodies of the slain into the crypts, but they have not returned. Perhaps the ghost of Tolkemec took them. Be silent, fool, she ordered harshly. The ghost is a myth. She came down from her dais, playing with a thin gold-hilted dagger. Her eyes burned like nothing on the hither side of hell. She paused beside the altar and spoke in a tense stillness. "'Your life shall make me young, white woman,' she said. "'I shall lean upon your bosom and place my lips over yours, and slowly, ah, slowly, sink this blade through your heart, so that your life, fleeing your stiffening body, shall enter mine, making me bloom again with youth and with life everlasting.' Slowly, like a serpent arching toward its victim, she bent down through the writhing smoke, closer and closer over the now motionless woman who stared up into her glowing dark eyes, eyes that grew larger and deeper, blazing like black moons in the swirling smoke. The kneeling people gripped their hands and held their breath, tense for the bloody climax, and the only sound was Conan's fierce panting as he strove to tear his leg from the trap. All eyes were glued on the altar and the white figure there. The crash of a thunderbolt could hardly have broken the spell. Yet it was only a low cry that shattered the fixity of the scene and brought all whirling about. A low cry, yet one to make the hair stand up stiffly on the scalp. They looked, and they saw. Framed in the door to the left of the dais stood a nightmare figure. It was a man with a tangle of white hair and a matted white beard that fell over his breast. Rags only partly covered his gaunt frame, revealing half-naked limbs, strangely unnatural in appearance. The skin was not like that of a normal human. There was a suggestion of scaliness about it, as if the owner had dwelt long under conditions almost antithetical to those conditions under which human life ordinarily thrives and there was nothing at all human about the eyes that blazed from the tangle of white hair. They were great gleaming disks that stared unwinkingly, luminous, whitish, and without a hint of normal emotion or sanity. The mouth gaped, but no coherent words issued, only a high-pitched tittering. Tolkemec, whispered Tassella, livid, while the others crouched in speechless horror. No myth, then... No ghost. Set. You have dwelt for twelve years in darkness. Twelve years among the bones of the dead. What grisly food did you find? What mad travesty of life did you live in the stark blackness of that eternal night? I see now why Zamek and Zlanith and Tachik did not return from the catacombs, and never will return. But why have you waited so long to strike? Were you seeking something in the pits, some secret weapon you knew was hidden there? 
And have you found it at last? That hideous tittering was Tolkemec's only reply, as he bounded into the room with a long leap that carried him over the secret trap before the door, by chance or by some faint recollection of the ways of Zuchatl. He was not mad, as a man is mad. He had dwelt apart from humanity so long that he was no longer human. Only an unbroken thread of memory embroidered in hate and the urge for vengeance had connected him with the humanity from which he had been cut off, and held him lurking near the people he hated. Only that thin string had kept him from racing and prancing off forever into the black corridors and realms of the subterranean world he had discovered long ago. "'You sought something hidden,' whispered Tassella, cringing back, "'and you have found it. You remember the feud. After all these years of blackness, you remember!' For in the lean hand of Tolkemec now waved a curious jade-hued wand, on the end of which glowed a knob of crimson shaped like a pomegranate. She sprang aside as he thrust it out like a spear, and a beam of crimson fire lanced from the pomegranate. It missed Tassella, but the woman holding Valeria's ankles was in the way. It smote between her shoulders. There was a sharp crackling sound, and the ray of fire flashed from her bosom and struck the black altar, with a snapping of blue sparks. The woman toppled sideways, shriveling and withering like a mummy even as she fell. Valeria rolled from the altar on the other side and started for the opposite wall on all fours for hell had burst loose in the throne-room of dead Olmec. The man who had held Valeria's hands was the next to die. He turned to run, but before he had taken half a dozen steps, Tolkemec, with an agility appalling in such a frame, bounded around to a position that placed the man between him and the altar. Again the red fire-beam flashed, and the Tecutli rolled lifeless to the floor as the beam completed its course with a burst of blue sparks against the altar. Then began slaughter. Screaming insanely, the people rushed about the chamber, carooming from one another, stumbling and falling, and among them Tolkemec capered and pranced, dealing death. They could not escape by the doors, for apparently the metal of the portals served like the metal-veined stone altar to complete the circuit for whatever hellish power flashed like thunderbolts from the witch-wand the ancient waved in his hand. When he caught a man or a woman between him and a door or the altar, that one died instantly. He chose no special victim. He took them as they came, with his rags flapping about his wildly gyrating limbs, and the gusty echoes of his tittering sweeping the room above the screams. The bodies fell like falling leaves about the altar and at the doors. One warrior in desperation rushed at him, lifting a dagger, only to fall before he could strike. But the rest were like crazed cattle, with no thought for resistance and no chance of escape. The last Tecutli except Tassela had fallen when the princess reached the Cimmerian and the girl who had taken refuge beside him. Tassela bent and touched the floor, pressing a design upon it. Instantly the iron jaws released the bleeding limb and sank back into the floor. "'Slay him if you can,' she panted and pressed a heavy knife into his hand. "'I have no magic to withstand him.' With a grunt he sprang before the women, not heeding his lacerated leg in the heat of the fighting lust. 
Tolkemec was coming toward him, his weird eyes ablaze. But he hesitated at the gleam of the knife in Conan's hand. Then began a grim game as Tolkemec sought to circle about Conan and get the barbarian between him and the altar or a metal door, while Conan sought to avoid this and drive home his knife. The women watched tensely, holding their breath. There was no sound except the rustle and scrape of quick-shifting feet. Tolkemec pranced and capered no more. He realized that grimmer game confronted him than the people who had died screaming and fleeing. In the elemental blaze of the barbarian's eyes he read an intent deadly as his own. Back and forth they weaved, and when one moved the other moved, as if invisible threads bound them together. But all the time Conan was getting closer and closer to his enemy. Already the coiled muscles of his thighs were beginning to flex for a spring when Valeria cried out. For a fleeting instant a bronze door was in line with Conan's moving body. The red line leaped, searing Conan's flank as he twisted aside, and even as he shifted he hurled the knife. Old Tolkemec went down, truly slain at last, the hilt vibrating on his breast. Tassela sprang not toward Conan, but toward the wand where it shimmered like a live thing on the floor. But as she leaped, so did Valeria, with a dagger snatched from a dead man, and the blade driven with all the power of the pirate's muscles, impaled the princess of Tecutli, so that the point stood out between her breasts. Tassela screamed once and fell dead, and Valeria spurned the body with her heel as it fell. I had to do that much for my own self-respect panted Valeria, facing Conan across the limp corpse. "'Well, this cleans up the feud,' he grunted. "'It's been a hell of a night. Where did these people keep their food? I'm hungry.' "'You need a bandage on that leg.' Valeria ripped a length of silk from a hanging and knotted it about her waist, then tore off some smaller strips which she bound efficiently about the barbarian's lacerated limb. "'I can walk on it,' he assured her. Let's be gone. It's dawn outside this infernal city. I've had enough of Zushadl. It's well the breed exterminated itself. I don't want any of their accursed jewels. They might be haunted. There's enough clean loot in the world for you and me, she said, straightening to stand tall and splendid before him. The old blaze came back into his eyes, and this time she did not resist as he caught her fiercely in his arms. It's a long way to the coast, she said presently, withdrawing her lips from his. What matter? he laughed. There's nothing we can't conquer. We'll have our feet on a ship's deck before the Stygians open their ports for the trading season. And then we'll show the world what plundering means. End of Red Nails by Robert E. Howard This is Tom Mahomey. And I'm Jesse. And this is Brian Murphy. Hey, we guys, we just listened to or read uh, Red Nails by Robert E. Howard. Tam, this is the first time for you, right? Yes. Brian, how many times have you read the story before? Uh, I would say maybe three, four, five times. Hard, yeah. in, in, in some different formats. Uh, comic books. Sure. Uh, as well as the real stuff from REH. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, I've got the comic book right in front of me here, actually, the uh, 
the uh, Conan Saga version, which is uh, collects all of the um, serialization from Savage Tales, and it's in black and white. I, I think there's probably a little more gore in it, too, because of the uh, uh, restriction for the color comic version. Sweet. I have the same issue. Oh, it's a good... Uh, you know, I, I'm a big fan of the Conan Saga series, even though it is, you know, it's not complete and everything, because they tend to, you know, they sort of put the final polish on on the stuff versus Savage Sword or, or something else. And, of course, they're really cheap. Um, yep. Which is cool. And I was just, I was, I was doing some comparison and it is pretty damn close adaptation. Very, um, I mean, many times the exact words are used and, uh, the descriptions are used. There's some fiddling around here and there and, and the tenses are changed. But I'm, you know, it's Barry Windsor Smith art, so it's fantastic looking, right? Oh, yeah, I like that. Art. Yeah, I, I, I'm not an art connoisseur, but the, uh, he's one of my favorite artists. Um, I think I do probably prefer uh, John Buscema. Oh, uh, of course, yeah. But, uh, but but Barry Wendersmith is has got a very unique style. And he is a style. He is a yeah. stylist. Uh, it's very detailed. You know, oh yeah. Now, if you look at faces, um, I think he's got a face problem, like angles. <laughs> the, the people's faces <laughs> look like they got run over or something. <laughs> but uh, the intricacy of of everything else. It almost makes up for it, like the, you know, the walls and the floors and the hair and the, the muscles. It's all um, incredibly detailed and ornate. Yeah. Now for the for the for the blog post, Jesse, you're gonna post some of the yeah, art. Yeah, I'll put, I'll put some I, of this up because it's it is. It's hard to describe it, but you're right. It's very detailed. A lot of shadow and, um, you know, just the. The walls and the, the the architectural detail it's it's pretty amazing stuff yeah i i um i have uh, i'll try and f- dig it out at some point but i've got a barry windsor smith uh short uh comic book series that he did i think it's called storyteller have you seen that it's it's a large format like even bigger than savage sword uh really large format with um him writing and telling the stories and uh, some of what? his writing's not that great, but his art is just incredible. It's, mm-hmm. just, it's like a sword and sorcery book? Yeah, it's kind of... It's, I think it's, I've seen it in the bookstore. So it's it's kind, kind of an anthology, and so it's got like multiple storylines going. Some of it is like uh, gods in conflict, and other stuff is... Uh, other stuff, but it's been years since I've looked at it, so it'll be interesting to go back and check it out. Yeah, I prefer that uh, detailed, precise style to the, like, scratchy, like, abstract style that some other comic book artists do. Well, if, if you if you twisted my arm, I'd say uh, Ernie Chan or John um, mm-hmm. Buscema um, working together would be my preferred way of storytelling, but uh, there's something to the way Barry Smith puts a, a drawing, you know, a page together that really, really works. I, I don't know if he's, if he's working. I, I, I don't see his stuff. Anymore, me neither. But, well, I, yeah. I think he did something independently a couple years ago, and that's the last thing I ever saw. Yeah, he he's, did. He did like the origin of England, uh, Wolverine. Right? Yeah, that's right. I think he did some some of that. Uh, There's a Yahoo group called the um, Reh. Um, what the heck is it called? Reh Comics Group. Mm-hmm. All right. And, and those guys are. There's a lot of chat. Yeah, Reh Comics Group on Yahoo. It's one of those Yahoo groups, and they. 
some some folks in there could probably answer your question, but yeah, he, they, they're they're kind of the Conan art connoisseurs, and they they know a lot about him. I I'm not sure whether he's still working or not. So, uh, one of the things that I've noticed uh, in you know going through this story a few times uh, for our podcast here is that it. It is feels a lot different from a lot of other Conan stories, but it, it's considered, you know, one of his best pieces of writing. What do you guys think? Tan, I heard. Yeah, I would agree with it. I I would put it in his. For me personally, I would put it in his top three or four stories. I agree. Uh, beyond the Black Rivers up there, like a, a Tower of the Elephant. I I personally love that one quite a bit. Uh, but Red Nails is is one of my favorites. Um, I think it's got a pr- pretty good reputation. It's not unanimous that it's one of his best. I right. was reading something by Carl Edward Wagner. Yeah, his introduction to the paper yeah. book. And he actually says it's kind of a little bit formulaic and, you know, not his best. Yeah, he doesn't like the ending either because it was the last story written and yes. it ends in a, in a happy note, which makes it less powerful. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think that that's true. I mean, when I think of the best Robert E. Howard story, I think of Queen of the Black Coast. And I'm not even talking the best Conan story. I think Queen of the Black Coast. And because it's so grim and melancholic, you know. Yep. Um, he manages to get everything in there. It's, it's an adventure. It's an action. It's a love story. It's supernatural horror. It's, uh, a grim. Oh yeah, pirates! Don't forget the pirates. <laughs> um, and you know it has all the classic good, pulpy, you know, sinewy uh, Robert E. Howard writing. Now this this story has, I, I know in the description that Howard gave it himself, he called it a uh, what a slaughterhouse or something like that, a uh, a meat fest. <laughs> yeah, and there's lots of torture and. You know, people's legs getting chewed up and people's legs getting stabbed. Even uh, women are whipping each other in this. Yeah, well, flagellating Shock women and lesbianism. Does have a little bit of that. All that stuff, uh, but it does have this happy ending that that uh, well, it's, I guess it's a happy ending. It, it's just not a. It's sort of a ah, let's get on with it and go get something to eat. <laughs> yeah, that was the one Let's thing about the story that I, I will say to me was a little bit, and we're getting right to the end, but I guess, I don't know what I call it, disappointing, but a little bit jarring was, you know, at at the very end, you have, um, I'm trying to think of the line that he used, it was like, well, well the world was plundering means. Yeah, and, and like, so much so much for that, uh, you know, decades old uh, gang war, now let's go. <laughs> Let's yeah. go have some fun, you know. It it's was like, just it's like the ending of a regular weekly series where they are just laughing, <laughs> and then you see like a freeze frame of them laughing. You know, what, <laughs> it, it, it's pretty close. It, I eventually figured out what it feels most like to me, and this is going to be very strange, I think. Um, and that is uh, basically a Tom Baker Doctor Who episode, because or Doctor Who, not episode, Doctor Who story. Because you've got, uh, you know, the characters arriving on the scene. Um, there's a great monster. They flee, right? Yep. And they discover uh, a strange city. Outside the city, there's evidence of a lot of life uh, long ago. Um, so it's like a, a landscape that's no longer used. Declined people. They go inside. It's a haunted place. Um, 
turns out that most of the haunting can be explained not by uh, by by supernatural means, but by uh, sort of pseudoscientific means. Um, the only real place where it really goes away from that is the uh, the the skull, uh, the glowing skull thing. That, but you know, I, I've seen things on on Doctor Who that would be a lot uh, more ex- explicable than the way he, they do it there. But it just felt like you know, there's a lot of people getting uh, kidnapped or uh, separated yeah. and having to be rescued, and then and this is coming back. Up, uh, society. Yeah, it, it's a it's a visit to a very um, unusual society, and that's what Howard was going for, right? He was he's talking about a feud culture. Mm-hmm. You've got two groups that are about to uh, wanting to kill each other, and that's their only goal. Yep, yeah, yeah. I mean, that sounds like magic in there is 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 very sparse. It's for effect. Um, mm. Like you said, the burning skull was one, um, and then you had. Uh, now the laser beams at the end. Tolkemec, if I'm pronouncing that Tolkemec, right. When he, comes, yeah. he, when he comes back with his wand, kind of like almost like a laser gun type of yeah. a deal. It's a it's a pretty cool. It, it is. It's it's sort of electrical. I think it's a, the idea. Yeah, that. that's. It actually has a pseudo, like you said, a pseudo scientific. I mean, he has to be between it and metal. Yeah. Um, Wait, so yeah, he was alive right. or was he a ghost? Uh, I think he was. He was damaged he was, by he being was, down there. Yeah, he was tortured for about a dozen years, and then uh, he got free in the catacombs, and they assumed he was dead. Um, and then he comes back, and it, it's okay. It's, I thought it was really. I guess, a ghost. It's, I guess it's debatable whether or not he's a ghost, but he's he's I, a, he's it, a, it he's seems a to be that he's a bone, right? He dies. Being. Yeah, he dies. If it bleeds, we can kill it. <laughs> um, that's from Predator, but I, I believe it's also from every. Conan story. <laughs> it bleeds, we can kill it. And in a way, um, it, it is a it is a very grim and gruesome story. It is a meat grinder of a story, but it isn't told that way. And so it feels like uh, it is. It feels like it was finished off by somebody else or something. Yeah, it has um, a much lighter tone than than a lot of a lot of the stuff we've seen. Yeah, I kind of like Beyond the Black Room. I'm like, interested uh, from a guy who hasn't read it uh, read it before. Um, I, yeah, I, I kind of like Beyond the Black River better. It seemed like a more even, uh, dark tone. And um, I guess no I like... love interest there. Yeah, actually, in the beginning of this, it's kind of disturbing the way he's uh, harassing Valeria. Yeah, he's yeah. sort of pawing at her. And I don't think women would enjoy at least the beginning of this story. But uh, Valeria... She 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 does she um I guess makes up for it later. Yeah, she, she kicks a lot of ass. Better. Yeah, yep. She's and uh, she doesn't really ever need to be the damsel in distress as much as um uh you know uh, we are looking at Conan is uh he is he is a uh, uh chauvinist right yeah. he is um but. I think you know the way they portray him in the comics. It's it's about right uh, with the character. I think they don't really get too far away from the fact that you know most women are damsels to be rescued, and when he treats her like one, uh, she she replies a bit. But you know we don't get much about her her motivation. What 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 is her character as to why she does what she does as a uh, a pirate? 
you know, uh, it seems to be she's she's there as a response. But we we actually she is more of the viewpoint character than Conan is. It even starts with her as as the uh, the lead character, and then Conan appears and he goes away during the story, and then we follow her. So she's the lead character in this story, uh, with Conan being you know the the romantic yeah. love interest. It's 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 a. I think he's done that a couple of other times with Conan, hasn't he? Yeah, I mean, she certainly shares at least equal time with him. There's no doubt about it. I I actually thought, you know, she does have a few moments of weakness in here, mm-hmm. but she's certainly a pretty strong character. I mean, especially if given the the fiction of the time. I mean, she's. I think he portrays her as pretty much. Yeah, equal to any man with a sword, and you know, I think he he actually says that no man can um, could disarm her with a sword, and um, yeah, she she certainly fears doesn't fear people any kind of living man, and you know, really a lot of feminine strength there. Uh, yeah, in her her character where where she doesn't where she you know we see her weakness is when uh, she's she's happy that he's doing something that other men wouldn't. Uh, she wouldn't allow other men to do for her. Um, yeah. but she's only secretly happy, right? And I, <laughs> I just see that as, that's Robert E. Howard saying, well, there are strong women, but secretly, <laughs> secretly they want us to take care of them. And I was thinking, well, that might be what you think, but I don't know if that's true. They, they yeah, say I mean, she's stronger than the average man. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt about it. She's, she's cer- fancy with a blade. She certainly hold her own, yeah. Now, uh, the, uh, there's a bunch of other characters within this story. Uh, you know, they, they start appearing and then we, well, we get into the actual plot. But I actually, my favorite part of the story is the beginning. Um, because we don't know what's going to happen. It's like a mystery. They just appear and there's, you know, she's up on top of this hill. What's that skull doing there? And then, oh, yep. uh, there's Conan. And then, oh, wait, what? There, he's about to, uh, coerce her into a kiss or whatever, and oh, the horses are being attacked. And what's attacking, right? And it's all this, you know, what's going to happen next? And then oh, there's a city off there. I wonder how what we could do. And uh, it just has this feel of a a mystery with fun characters that, you know, a lot of the times when with a Conan story, we we're thrown into the middle, um, and it feels more like a. Uh, it really takes its time. It's like an hour into the audiobook before the the plot is really really cooking, and it's only three hours. So, yeah, I I, I dig that. The great thing with and and with the again going back to the pseudo history of the stories, you know, with we're not quite sure if it's a dragon. That's what they call mm-hmm. it, but it, it's obviously it's got some characteristics of a type of dinosaur, although it's a combination tyrannosaurus rex with uh stega i think it has back plates on it maybe or yeah you know it's it's uh maybe not quite up to scientific snuff of a dinosaur but it 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 could be something from a you know cataclysmic age that survived you know so it's a little bit of that mixed in which is it i i thought was really cool yeah it's, uh, they call it a dragon, but it's a. We know it's a dinosaur, right? They, nobody calls it a, a stegosaurus, but if you look yeah. at the description, ah, it's a, it's it sounds like a stegosaurus. It, it's a carnivorous stegosaurus, but, <laughs> but even so, you know, maybe maybe we got that science wrong. You know, um, it's a leftover. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and the whole thing with the dragon. Yeah, it could be. 
and the, the whole bit with, like you said, with the the uh, the bones on top of the the rock, you know, leads you to believe that there's something going on. But um, it it definitely has that, you know, what do you call it in media res? He, he puts you right in there, and you're not quite sure what's going on. It's just the middle of a scene, and and you you gradually this stuff unfolds as it goes along. It's just it's I, it's one of the things that, to my mind, makes him re- uh, just a phenomenal storyteller. Yeah, I, I think he, you know the work he put into building the the world in this in this story uh, pays off because it, it does have this air of mystery. You know when he points out the 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 uh, the old earthworks, the uh, irrigation ditches that are all grown over, um, you say, "Ooh, what happened here? And why is that city sitting there empty, or is it empty?" And why did he when he breaks the door? He says. If they deserted the city, why is the door locked from the inside, right? Yeah. So, oh, okay. And and then we get the 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 first, I guess, the first speaking character who isn't Conan or Valeria. Uh, what's his name? It's um. Yeah. Yeah. His name is almost exactly the same name as the as the tribe he's in. Yeah. Um. It makes it a little confusing. Yeah. It's a T E C H O T L. Tector, Tecotl, yeah, Tecotl, I think is, uh, and he's from the Tecoluti. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I I I was telling you before the show, Jesse, that I I I read this. I didn't listen to the audio version, so um, I'm not sure how Greg pronounced the names. I I guess you said he did a pretty good job. He did. I think he did a great job with it. You can help us with the spelling. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm going. I'm going by the the comic book spelling, uh, which I believe is identical with the 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 paper book. But it is. Uh, it, it, it. I think the the fact that his name was exactly the same name as his people name, almost exactly, and yet the guy lying on the ground was slightly different. Uh, I think he's just trying to make it shorthand so that we know there's two groups right away, um, and they're opposing each other. And that's sort of a very Doctor Who thing too, right? You've got, or even a Star Trek thing, where you've got the the guys with the black on the white on the right side and the white on the left side, and over on the other side of the the castle or whatever it is, is the guys with the inverted color scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the, why are they fighting each other? Well, a long time ago, something you know, five generations ago, somebody did something to somebody, right? Um, so we get this feudal setup, but. This character, Tekotl, I guess is his name, um, I saw somebody was comparing him to, uh, who was it? To Golem. Hmm. In, in, you know, that he's, he's, uh, like, oh, master, this way! <laughs> <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, uh, and it, I guess the, his shape too, he was short and wiry, uh, with yeah. knotted muscles and, I was thinking, well, yeah, I guess it's a little bit like that. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. They, they just seem to accept the fact that there's outsiders all of a sudden. And we don't normally get the sense that there's a, there are outsiders in this, this building. I guess the idea is that the, the dragons would eat anybody who would come near, near Mm -hmm. the, near the city. Yeah. I, I, I thought the whole, you know, what I likened it to was that, um, I actually wrote an article about this um, a while back for the Sumerian when I was writing for that fine website before it closed. But I likened it to kind of like a um, a gang war. You know, you yeah, have yeah. 
you have the two different sides and they have their their own markings i think they have like white one of them has white skulls mm-hmm. on their chests and they're just fighting this war of annihilation and they're they're, they're in a you could compare it to you know a, a modern city the way the whole place is set up it's kind of got different levels and archways and hallways and a no man's land and um it's it's that's that that it's kind of just one one interpretation you know you, yeah. you had howard was writing in a time where you had um obviously not the the full fully blown you know la style gangs of of today but certainly with the you know some of the early mafia al capone organized crime type stuff that was going on in cities it all ties into his you know belief that cities led to the inhabitants in being slothful and uh, getting soft and yeah. getting corrupt over time and infertile as well apparently yeah exactly <laughs> um and and lesbian turning to, into lesbians yes um, that, that too. <laughs> I, I'm surprised they didn't, didn't all get rickets because they never go outside the city <laughs> had a lot of casserole I don't know where all the food's coming from yeah well they yeah they they, they, well, they gave that some I guess. They gave that, yeah, they, they said they used to grow food and then they mastered this art of they could grow food that f- was fed from the air. Did you, did you guys pay, oh, yeah, see that? that? Yeah. It was just a, like a one, one or two lines they mentioned somewhere in there. Yeah. Um, that it was again, it was, it allowed them to abandon actually the, the work of growing their own food. I, I, that also ties into his whole, you know, is that civilization is, is, is really a corrupt institution over time. Yeah. You're not in contact with your, your. He's he's like a locavore, right? <laughs> he wants everything to be grown <laughs> locally. Um, uh, it, it it's um it, it's uh it's a strange idea to have the walled city and a roofed city. I think I get you know we don't get that in fantasy very much. Um, what we get is domed cities in science fiction, right? There's the dome city, and the reason it's domed is for weather or the environment or pollution or something like that. In this, uh, the reason it's 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 ceilinged is not clear, but it appears that the people who live there are—I don't think they're the descendants of the of the original builders, are they? No, yeah, there, there was they're an original invaders. tribe there. They conquered them, right? Uh, yeah, that they these the the uh, the peoples that split off into various tribes. They came in and conquered them. There was a, another race there that was, you know, full blown degenerate. Um, and then they, the, you know they're bad because they they were they all their drawings were peaceful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sex and eating. There's no war. They can't be any good. And then this group that was that were fleeing the, the Stygians came in and they slew all the old inhabitants. They took up residence and then they started killing each other in in time. And they were afraid <laughs> of the dragons outside, so they never left, went outside again. Yep. And I know uh, Howard based this on a, a particular uh, valley feud that was famous, I guess, in his his era that I'm not familiar with, but. You know, I've heard about the, you know, the Clampets versus whoever it is. <laughs> maybe it's not the Clampets. Maybe that's, maybe that's one of the Beverly Hillbillies names. I'm not sure. But there's, there's some pair of families that are in a feud in a valley somewhere and they just don't care about anything except for killing each other. The whole focus of everything is, is to kill each other. And I do like, you know, they've got this giant black pillar 
in which they pound a red nail every time they kill one of their enemies. Yeah, I, I, I love that image. That, um, you know, that's one of the things that we, when, when we talk about authors, we, we try to, you know, analyze, you know, what, what's the deeper meaning of the story or, mm-hmm. um, you know, how do they fit in historical context? And sometimes we just forget about the, this particular story had so many cool details to it that I just loved. You know, the, you just mentioned one, the kind of the, the, the black column of wood that with the copper red nails driven into it for every one they killed. I mean, the pillar of vengeance. Yeah. I love that. It's what, what just, what, what an image that is, you know, um, the, the city itself, you had, it's just enormous wealth. I think the walls were jade and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and Ruby and, uh, you can just imagine what it would look like picturing it. You know, there was actually, I wanted to mention, did you guys see this? There was a, there was a, a film that had been rumored to be released mm-hmm. for years. It was an animated film re- on about red nails. It's still up. It has its own website. You can still visit it. Uh, I don't know. I can't tell you the web address off the top it's of my red head. Rednailsmovie.com, I believe. Yeah. It's got some great images up there. And it was rumored for a release a couple of years ago. And then it was apparently scrapped the project which is too bad because it looked pretty phenomenal and if you look at the yeah. interior drawings of the city it's pretty close you know to how howard Ward described it and uh, it's not barry Winsor smith art but it's it no. looked like it was fairly uh i mean for what what, what animated sequence they put up on youtube and the, the drawings it, it, yeah you know they've got good voice actors too i think uh what's his name uh who was in the actual recent conan movie uh, playing Conan's dad was going to be in it. Uh, what, yeah, what, 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 what all the Howard fans have been asking for for ages now is that how about you try making a movie about one of the actual stories? Oh, that wouldn't that, ask, be, you know, wouldn't that be an interesting idea? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I know it, it, it never worked for uh, for Marvel comics, eh? Or Dark Horse. Yeah. You know, I, I wonder. I wonder if it would work. Uh, you know, for a film. Hey, it might. We've got a pretty darn good self-contained story here, you know, with with a lot of. I, I would say give it to give it to an HBO producer and yeah. let them do, uh, you know, a Conan episode every six months, uh, based on a story. I'd happily watch that. Sounds good. I know HBO can do no wrong these days. You, Basically, you know. that seems to be the case. <laughs> I, I found the site is ConanRedNails.com. Yep. Oh, I thought it was Conan. Uh, Conan uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, you're right. I think that is. Now, you know, um, uh, part of their problem may have been the word Conan. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not sure. There was no real reason given. And, yeah, it might have been copyright. It might have been it's lack of copyright. funding. It's, it's, it's the trademark on the word Conan. Hmm. So this, this story is public domain. You could make a movie out of it. Now, whether they would try and sue you out of making the movie and you, you know, being able to fight that is a question, but the story itself is public domain and you can do anything you want with it, just like we're doing today. But, um, if they've got this uh, idea of using the character, um, to help promote the movie, that, you know, company that's sitting on that name and licensing stuff is possibly responsible for destroying that project because it's it i would watch that movie i think that uh, that would have been a, a great one to get on dvd you know oh yeah no doubt about it and seeing all the layouts and all that stuff it 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 looked really good that project 
Oh, now, there's, yeah, I know. It, it would have been nice to see. And, and again, I'm hoping one day it's revived. Or, but uh, uh, as of now, it's looking pretty, pretty much like a, a dead issue. Uh, now, speaking of um, uh, adaptations, I, I, I should also point out there is a relatively new colorization of the old Barry Windsor Smith. And from what I've seen, I don't actually have the, uh, the collection. Um, but it's in the Dark Horse Chronicles of Conan collection number four, I think. Um, and that has, which, which is st- odd because, you know, that series is s- supposed to be adapting the, the Marvel Conan the Barbarian collections, uh, you know, stories. But they, they added this one to their adaptation in, in, in volume four of the Chronicles. And the recolorization of, those stories is absolutely beautiful. It, it adds a depth to the page in the use of, I guess, modern coloring, computer coloring mm-hmm. techniques that makes it really stunning. So in the scene where we, we get the appearance of the, uh, the throne room and a whole bunch of skulls, you know, heads behind the, uh, a plate of glass, mm-hmm. that looks like a plate of glass with heads behind it. Because of the, the the coloring in the um, big Marvel Treasury Edition, I guess I've got uh, that's in color. I think it's a Treasury Edition. It's a giant size, anyways. Giant size Conan. Um, it the coloring is weak. It's like it looks like you know regular '70s comic book coloring, and it's you know, sort of washed out. And, uh, and the paper is white, though, right? So it looks different than the original it like, does. yellowish paper that you would buy. It, it yeah, it it does. But this this new colorization really does bring life to those old drawings. Um, and I maybe you say that was Jesse was a dark horse. Yeah, dark horse has got the all the Marvel stuff being reprinted, and it's it's the Chronicles of Conan, um, Volume Four. It's also been it's it, it sometimes it's titled Red Nails, um, and sometimes it's titled uh, The Song of Red Sonya. I think, but I don't I don't know why they've got multiple names for the same collection but yeah i've debated getting those but i i've never made them nope. I, I still i still have if you've got the originals my, uh, right? yeah i've got the original savage swords not all of them but quite a number of them and i've got um a lot of the conan sagas but uh yeah i i've never I, I it's crossed my mind a few times maybe i should go out and get those you know <laughs> I've, I've heard a lot of good things about them now is speaking of coloring um i i've I think one of the richness richnesses that are in Conan stories, uh, and actually just Robert E. Howard stories, is his his use of color. He is not just I'm not just talking racism, obviously. I'm talking that's um, another feature. <laughs> that's another feature. Yeah, that's a that's a bug, maybe not a feature. Um, <laughs> but in the in the actual visual description of everything, he loves color. I mean, it's in the title, Red Nails, right? Yep. And, and Red Nails oh, on a Black X. Column. Yep. Um, the, the, everybody's hair is compared to something else. Uh, Valeria's eyes are the color of the sea, right? Mm-hmm. And. Yeah, that, that loses some impact when you're reading the old black and white Barry Windsor Smith. And- <laughs> <laughs> the it, it, it says, you know, it, it says it in a little box, but, um, you know, it, it's in the, the text. And it is a richness that you don't see in a lot of that. He is a beautiful stylist. Oh yeah, 
It's. Uh, I think that's one of the reasons why he's uh, he's still indoors today. I mean, this there's got to be a reason. He's he's got. Oh, well, like anybody, there's, there's got his detractors on the web, like you know. But I mean, here it's been 75 years since he's passed on to the great unknown, and his stuff is arguably as popular as it ever was. I think it's because of the way he's a very descriptive writer, imaginative. You 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 can picture in your mind very easily what's going on. Uh, I guess a cinematic style maybe might be the word. Uh, colorful. I I agree. You know, he's he's just a great storyteller. I'm just gonna pick a passage at random and you can listen to it and and you can hear it. Listen to this. Tecotl, who had bound a strip of silk about his wounded thigh, placed himself at the table to attend the wants of his friends, seeming to consider it a privilege and an honor to see after their needs. He inspected the food and drink. The others brought in gold vessels and dishes, and tasted each before he placed it before his guests. While they ate, Olmec sat in silence on his ivory seat, watching them from under his broad black brows. Tessela, uh, Tessela, Tessela, uh, sat beside him, chin cupped in her hands, and her elbows resting on her knees, her dark enigmatic eyes burning with mysterious light, never uh, left Valeria's supple figure. <laughs> Behind her seat, a sullen, <laughs> handsome girl waved an ostrich plume fan with a slow rhythm. Um, so only like three or four colors in there. But every he's like Howard. He's a lover of adjectives. He's a lover of the yep. of the description. And um, as uh, I guess in our most recent podcast before this, we've been Scott and I have been reading the um, the Odyssey and. Yep. I had read the Odyssey long ago, and probably around the t- same time I started reading Conan, uh, I guess in the 80s, early 80s, and um, I never noticed it until very recently. You know, I, I think Howard's major influence that most people aren't talking about is is the Odyssey. Uh, in book uh, 10, I think it is, uh, they sail up uh, a river into a land called Samaria. And the uh, they visit a people, uh, the land of the lotus eaters, <laughs> and you you eat yeah, the you lotus. Yeah, you get a black and, lotus in this one. Yeah. yeah, and you get you eat the lotus, and you become forgetful of your of your future and your past. And um, you know, lotus, black lotus, and white lotus, and other lotus turn up in Conan stories consistently. It, yeah, well, you've got the uh, Yasala there, Tessela's mage. She attempts to. To drug Valeria, remember she's she's in the room and she sneaks in with the flower, and Valeria happens to wake up at the last second, but she's leaning over with a black lotus. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're onto something, Jesse. There, you should you should write that up and uh, send it in to like the the dark man. Well, I I think it would, <laughs> I think it would require a lot of a lot more research, but I I think one of the things that we can do now with our with our more and more digitalized. Uh, copies of these things is we can just do word searches you know so you you yep. you remember from some story long ago that this word was mentioned and you say oh okay yeah and so you just can put all the stories into one big database right and just do a word search and go through and spot all those things i know as i've been going through the philip k dick stories um he he reuses character names endlessly you know for completely different characters just because he likes the name and yep. 
I think that, that happens in a couple of Conan stories where he reuses a, or maybe not Conan, but Howard stories where he, he reuses a character name and we're not sure if it was the same person intentionally, but it probably isn't because they're in different galaxies or whatever it is. Um, but I think that there, there's a, a new ability to find these patterns, even if the authors aren't aware of them at the time. Yeah, that's know. one of the great uh, inventions of our time is control F. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> As long as you have the PDF, yeah, you're, you're good. Or you can the just other, make a word cloud of each story and see what the biggest yeah, words are. I, I want, I want Tammy. I'd love you to do that for this story. I'd love to see what this one look like. I, I really like the word cloud you sent me a while ago because okay. it does give you a sense. You know, I, I would suggest that red and black are going to be highly placed on the, that word cloud, um, yep. and muscles and <laughs> sword and a bunch of other things, right? Maybe beard. Um, uh, the other interesting thing is in talking about these two cultures, um, it sounded, their names sound like, uh, sort of Aztec names, you know, like, uh, yeah. or, or at least, um, pre-Columbian, uh, Indian, uh, Mexican names, you know, like, uh, the Tol- Toltecs and, uh, the Ol, not the Olmecs, but <laughs> Olmec is the guy. The- yeah, you got Tecultí. And Zotolank, if I'm pronouncing those right again, <laughs> probably butchering them. It's okay. <laughs> I can't say I've ever spoken those words aloud until this podcast. Zotolank, I like it. <laughs> I'm going to name my first child Zotolank, <laughs> just so he has trouble crossing the border. Yeah, no, there's no doubt about it. And and if you look at you know the Aztecs with you know, uh, although this isn't really touched on in the story, but you know cannibalism and and it's just some of the you know the, the the crazy stories from from history. This, that, I mean, that's one of the things about Howard. He was a historical writer. I mean, the, his people talk about you know the fantasy genre, and they want to put Howard in with you know like a, a Tolkien or you know or David Eddings or some of these other guys. He he was really he came out of a historical background, and he came out of the the, the adventure writers. I think you've alluded to it, Jesse. Before mm-hmm. I agree that like a Jack London. Yeah, Edgar Rice Burroughs, uh, Harold Lamb, who was a historical author, a little bit lesser known, um, and this there's a definite influence in his stories. You can you can see it. It's not his influences are not, you know, the old epic fantasy writers like a William Morris or a Tolkien or a you know a Lord Dunsany or those types of guys. Definitely right. different different. Um, Different place he's coming from. If if we're talking contemporary, uh, you know, to him, uh, the only person who really seems to have influenced him contemporarily was was uh, Lovecraft, and you know, he yep. wrote sort of Lovecraftian stories because he thought these are cool, and and so he wrote some, and I think those are some of his best writings because he brings he brings all the richness that is his writing style to uh, yep. a very simple. Um, a simple to understand genre and hard to master genre, which is the the sort of creepy uh, horror story. Yeah, I think it's worth mentioning a little bit about swords and sorcery, which I, I one of my passions. But it's uh, some people just say fantasy is fantasy, or or frankly, speculative fiction, speculative fiction, and and there's there's something to be made for that. Like, should we be drawing these distinctions between science fiction, fantasy? You know, what's the old saying that if if the, if the science is advanced enough, it's indistinguishable from magic. So right. it's all the same. But you know, swords and sorcery to me, I find it useful because 
if nothing for if for nothing else, then it's a good a recommendation tool. You know, you can say, oh, geez, I really love uh, Robert E. Howard. You know, what would you recommend? You wouldn't. Hopefully, you wouldn't turn around and say, how about you go read the Belgariad or. Uh, you know, how about you go read the Sword of Shannara? Because to me, they're they're radically different. You know, there's there's a different aesthetic to them. There's different influences to them. Um, and with Swords and Sorcery, you you just mentioned it, Jesse. You know, there's a strong horror element. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lovecraft was uh, Howard's contemporary, and certainly he influenced Howard. And you look at like and back to Red Nails, the uh, crawler there uh, from the catacombs. Um, definite horror influence. Very much throughout all those stories. I mean, Howard wrote, he's known for Conan, but he wrote, you know, in, in the horror genre quite a bit, uh, as well as other genres. And certainly, you know, uh, you, you can just see the Lovecraft coming through. I mean, the, they look at like the Black Stone, one of his more famous horror oh, stories. That's a great story. Worm, Worms of the Earth. I was, uh, thinking, uh, I, I was thinking we might do Worms of the Earth um, as our next Howard. Yeah. Um, I'm a big fan of that story. It's 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 uh, it's Roman contem- uh, Roman times, isn't it? Sort of half. That's right. It's Roman and uh, and versus the you know the Picts and yeah. Uh, it's yeah it's um, certainly yeah that, that 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 was a big one of Howard's favorites historical eras. I mean it's yeah with you know the barbarians at the walls and so forth and um, you know that was his antr- ancestry was. Uh, you know, from Ireland and, and, uh, yeah, and it's, 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 it's a fantastic story. It's one of it. It's usually accorded one of his best. Well, um, I'm a big fan of those, uh, Brand McMoran stories and, uh, you know, Kings in the Night and, and, and all of those. Um, I've got the collection here and I've got the audiobook I got from Tantor, which is, um, tantalizing me. Um, <laughs> tantalizing. Tantorizing. <laughs> uh, they did a really good job with the um, the three. Uh, mind you, I haven't heard all three of the Conan uh, collections, but we did. You know, we did one on on the first Conan collection. I think it's Conan the Sumerian, and they put out the other the other two that were released by Del Rey as well. And um, they've got really good narration on those. So, um, I th- it just I'm I'm so happy that there's so much left to read. You know. Oh yeah, I, I haven't That's read everything the- by Howard, but I, what I've read, I really have pretty much loved. Uh, there's not really, you know, uh, uh, all, with all the caveats you can put on it, you know, oh my God, this guy is so fucking racist, it's unbelievable. <laughs> and then you say, oh well, but beyond that, look at how great a story it is. And he's like, yeah, it is. It is a great story. Well, I, I just got to say, I, and I know that it's a sensitive subject, and obviously, you know, Howard. There's no getting around it that he was certainly by our standards racist. I mean, it's it's not even an issue. I mean, I I I don't think anyone is making that point. But I I've 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 kind of and people say, well, you know, you're a fanboy, you're coming to his defense. But if you if you if you look at the context of where where he was growing up, you know, 20s and 30s Texas. If you look at some of the scientific theories of the time about race um you know essentially he lived in a horribly racist time and place you had eugenics was popular in howard's time uh you know it was, it was widely supported by prominent personalities you had scientific studies linking you know stuff like cranium sizes and, and facial structures to various race 
practices and, and also to intelligence, morality. I mean, this is where this is what he grew up with. And for him to for pe- people in our era to think that he should conform to our standards of of uh, of race is, is it's it's frankly ludicrous. You know, I mean, the, he he was who he was. He I mean, you, you can point to people that who lived in his era that were certainly, um, you know, ha- had a much were much more advanced in their thinking, but it's, it's, you know, I, I don't think it's just a fanboy defense to say that this is the era, this is the time he grew up in, and um, that's who he was. You know, no, and some of the, we a can, lot of we can condemn, condemn his, his racism and also love his stories um, yep. in the same way that you can say, you know, Benjamin Franklin, awesome dude, but uh, many of his friends, uh, massive slaveholders. <laughs> Um, yeah. How can you reconcile that? Well, because back then, uh, slaveholding was the normal thing, and most people, uh, you know, they just go along with what's normal. They don't. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that it's amazing. The main thing that I think is amazing is that Robert E. Howard, a guy who lived, you know, basically in a small town his whole life, he got a hold of all these really cool books and was inspired by them. And did something amazing, and basically didn't, you know, do it in a a center of, of, um, you know, cosmopolitan publishing. Um, he did it, you know, from the backwoods almost, and that's because of the mail system, right? <laughs> You've got a guy who's who can, you know, do do amazing work through uh, essentially, you know, the old-fashioned email system, which is regular post he can mail his story off get rejected uh fix it up send it off to somewhere else and and they were living in a different time and yep. there are still uh whack job racist people today uh but there are so few and i believe that you know if he was not surrounded by you know lovecraft isn't much better right He's he's not like saying, "Whoa, Jesus Howard, I love your writing." Except, you know, you're wrong about race. They disagree about race, but it's not like their disagreements are massive, right? There, you living. had, yeah. I mean, he he had he grew up in a in a place where there was still Civil War veterans walking around. There, there was still they had recent wars against Indians. You know, it was it was a different time. You know, and people just I think today they pick it up and they're shocked by some of the stuff that's in the stories and as well as they should be i mean it's it's a natural reaction but you've got to contextualize it that's all that that's yep. what i keep trying to say and some people say no he he needs to be shunned i mean i've actually heard this from some, some idiots on the on the web that say you know his stuff is not worth passing on anymore let's let's they're not advocating that he's that you know that we um ban him for example or uh you know blacklist him somehow but they say his his stuff is should be dropped from the lexicon you know let's move on let's 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 make him a footnote in history and it's like well you're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. i mean look at all the great stuff he's done look at the stories he's told the characters he's created and yeah there's a racist element but it's like you you need to just take a historical perspective to this stuff i i think i think you know you can you can do both you can love it and and also be uh, greatly disturbed by, you know, the base. I mean, the thing is, is he really, the the thing that makes it 
it tough. And, you know, I, I do love Howard's stories, so it's not like I'm uh, saying we shouldn't read them. I'm saying we should read them. But the thing that makes it tough is it is in the foundation of every story. I can't think of one story Howard's written where uh, race hasn't played some major role in what he's trying to say. And oh, it, it, it's wrong. He's wrong about that, but it's still a good story. And I think that that's why, you know, we can have stories about, uh, you know, space opera where things are going a little faster than light, and it still can be a good story, even though it's wrong. Um, it's not wrong in the same way, but it's it's similar in that just because somebody's wrong about something, you know, just because Orson Scott Card is a horrible homophobe doesn't mean you shouldn't read his books. Yeah, I mean, but you, the, you'll, the thing about him is it's not... And I, I completely agree. He, he agreed with racial essentialism, you know, with certain char- races are different characteristics. Uh, it's pretty obvious when you read his stuff, but then you look at, you know, and I'm getting a little out of my territory here because I haven't read everything Howard's written. I've read, I've mostly read, you know, the Conan, the Cull, Solomon Kane. I've read the, the Brand McMoran stuff, but I've read a little bit of his, you know, like, uh, I'm thinking, and I wish we had Al Heron on the show. We had, there's a, there's a story called The Spirit of, of Tom Molyneux, which features a character called Ace Jessel. Mm-hmm. He's the protagonist of the story. It's told through his perspective. He's a black boxer. Um, and he's very sympathetic. He's a, he's a human being. He's got, you know, a heart as big as anybody's and he's not portrayed as some type of lesser person because he's black. I mean, this, his, it, it, it's, that's the other thing about Howard's racism. It's, it's very complex. You know, he, he, you could argue that his, his views on race changed over the course of his career. I mean, all the other thing about him, he's, of course, he's very young. He started writing when he was mm-hmm. 18. He was dead at 30. So, you know, we all like to think that we had a perfect view of, of, <laughs> of, of, of this author who was just, frankly, a kid in, in his twenties throughout, you know, a lot of his writing career and, um, I think if you look at his stories, I, I, I've argued the arc of his stories that his views on race were changing a little bit. They, it was stronger if you look at his early Solomon Cain stuff um, and the, some of his adventures over in Africa. It was more, much more apparent. I think it was still there throughout all of his stuff, mm-hmm. his Conan stuff, but it, it seemed to be, to me, it was softening. Well, it, it, as you work on this stuff, as you think about things, and that's what he's doing when he's writing, you know, he's thinking... Um, he's thinking aloud. He, he can start to see some of the inconsistencies because he, he wants to have it both ways, right? He wants to have, uh, a strong character in Conan or whatever character it is, any, his main character, and then he wants to have a villain he's up against, right? And whoever that person he's fighting, he can't be, um, you know, uh, a straw man. He, yep. he, he says, well, what would make him both evil or worthy of, you know, the, the degenerative, whatever it is, um, and also, uh, a good villain? And, uh, in, in that development, you see, you know, he's thinking, well, you know, not everybody's like this, and maybe this guy's a little bit like that. And we even see that in, uh, this story. You know, we've got, uh, somebody, was it Olmec wants, was it Olmec who wants, Conan dead or Valeria dead? I can't remember. Olmec um, wants Conan dead, right? And, and he wants Valeria. He's, yeah, and he <laughs> he sends um he sends somebody to kill him, right? Yeah. Uh, and then that doesn't work out. Um, and so uh, he says, "Why why did you try and kill me?" He says, "Oh, I was under orders, right?" And then yeah. 
and that guy, you know, he's he's against Conan, but he's also on his side because he gives him information and helps him out. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there the the people in this story are caught in a trap. They're they're both caught in a trap, and that is they think what they're doing is the only thing that can be done and the only thing that's important. And when they start, when they even think that at a certain point that they've wiped out the enemy, there's a, a little question, a little debate: is what well, what will we do? <laughs> we I know. Our goal? I, I found that fascinating. Yeah. I mean, that that was that there was that conversation with the two guards, and they said, uh, "I wish I could remember what it, what it was, but yeah, they, they said, you know." We're going to go and we're going to slaughter all of our opponents, uh, all the Zondelanks. And, what? and they said, well, what happens next? And uh, it was just like a blank look on their yeah. face. Well, no. no, I think well, he said, we'll put up some more red nails. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, but that, you're not really thinking too much. Right? <laughs> um, a little after that, what's going to happen next? And, and in the, in the end, when we get to the end of the story and, you know, everybody's dead. That's what is so cool about this story is they go in, right? They think it's empty. They do their stuff. This is basically a weekend, right? This is like a, a two, three day story in this, in this, in this place. And it reminds they, me of my average weekend, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty busy, you know, <laughs> torture machines and, uh, <laughs> whips and lo- black lotus and uh, <laughs> lots of heads being chopped off, um, laser beams. Uh, and then after the weekend, they come out of this, uh, Las Vegas of the, uh, of Africa, whatever <laughs> place it is. And, uh, they're saying like, let's not even take any treasure because this place is cursed and there's plenty of clean loot out there. And I'm yep. like, uh, I, I, I think even though, um, the story's ending is very soft compared to a lot of harder, you know, more noirish, uh, harsh stories um, like Beyond the Black River and Queen of the Black Coast. Um, I, I think that it's, it's, it is fitting. It's mm-hmm. a fitting ending. Um, it's, I, I think it's because the story is told from kind of Valeria's point of view. We, we get a distance from it um, and we get uh, sort of a, it's just a, a, a happy piece. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if a darker ending would have worked any better. Uh, yeah, I, I, I was just noting that the story that I love the last, I don't know, twenty pages or so are just they're absolutely kind of gonzo nuts. I mean, you, you've got, you've got, you know, Olmec being tortured with some unbelievable. Device. He's got his rack. His head's on a rack of a bed of iron spikes. You've got an iron ball ready to crush him. Um, it's like an almost like an iron maiden on steroids or something. (laughs) And then you have so Conan frees him. Olmec jumps Conan. They roll down the stairs. They're fighting, and that's a you know Conan kills him while they're falling down the stairs. He breaks his neck or something. Loses his sword. Yeah, and then he shows up in the throne room. You got Valeria naked on an altar. Surrounded by black candles, Conan steps in a bear trap. Uh, then you've got the wizard Tolkemec comes back from the catacombs, you know, with his wand, and he's shooting essentially laser beams around. And you've got, <laughs> you've got, yep. you know, he and and Tessella frees Conan, and and uh, she he she winds up getting killed uh, by Valeria, and um, it's just it's just an unbelievable conclusion to that story. I mean, it's you know. 
gripping, I guess you'd call it. It's yeah. just, it's, 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 again, I, I would have loved to have seen the film of it. Well, you still may. Yeah, um, you know. Someday. I, yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of the audiobook. I think uh, there's something to, um, the richness, but, uh, barring a film, which I'm, you know, I, I, I would happily take a, uh, live action film or love an HBO series. Um, but I think this would make a pretty good, uh, audio drama too. I, have you heard the Queen of the Black Coast audio drama? Uh, I, I personally have not. No. What's, what's the difference between an audio drama and a, and a traditional audio book? Yeah. Uh, well, it's like a radio drama. It's, it's like a, um, it's a uh, TV a with, no with no picture. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's like a, a movie with no video. So, uh, I think, I think the Queen of the Black Coast is basically a masterpiece. It's, uh, it's an amazing, um, six part serial. I think it's six parts. Um, that adapts the story is pretty damn faithful to the story. Um, but this, it's got a rich sound. Um, Conan has to do a lot more talking than he normally does. Um, because there's no, uh, thought bubbles, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, not much narration. So there's to... no, there's, and there's no, I don't, yeah, I don't think there's basically any narration, you know, sometimes you can get away with that, but, um, it it works out pretty pretty amazingly, and it's such a it's such a uh, rich story um, being told. And if you know the, you know, if you read the text, you can see how rich it is because it it really brings it out. So I was uh, talking to Bill Holwig, who we are also trying to get onto this podcast, just like Al Heron, Al Heron, um, uh, about uh, giving us the. Uh, the audio drama to put up as a, po- a podcast in one big uh, part, and he, he said he was working on that, so maybe we'll get That's that cool. out. Yeah, I, I think, it, because it's only been released as a serial. Um, if we did it like a, a two-hour uh, audio drama, that'd be pretty interesting. Yep. Might have to I, put out a stereo podcast. I, I don't think we've ever done that before. You, you wouldn't run into any legal troubles doing that? I'll take the trouble. Uh, it's worth it. Okay. I don't think there, I don't think, I, I don't think there's going to be that much trouble because, um, because Broken Sea had this up, but then they were made to take it down. They're the ones that made the audio drama. Yeah. And, and, like, and I, the, I think their problem was they used the word Conan and, hmm. and, you know, can't talk about the, it's like Sherlock Holmes. You can write a Sherlock Holmes book, but don't let the, the estate of whoever owns the, uh, Sherlock Holmes trademark hear about it. Because they'll try and sue you. They tried to sue um, uh, the John Carter people, the John Carter of Mars or John Carter movie people. Tried to sue the uh, the Dynamite Entertainment comic book series. Hmm. Uh, and they didn't do it well. Uh, <laughs> they did it only at the time when the um, when the movie was coming out. They didn't do it before that. They did it at the time because they were worried. Apparently, they think about the nudity that was in the the and the you know the blood gruesomeness that was in the uh, the the comic. Now, of course, what's funny is the movie version I hear does not include any of that, right? It's it's PG thirteen, but the original story is totally yeah. it's all nude and 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 the original and, story nobody wore a pair of clothing in the entire. No, that's thing. right. Well, not <laughs> not after the first few pages, anyways. No, yeah, you're right. So, 
you know, the 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 legal troubles I'm not so worried about. What I'm more worried about is getting good content. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. 